Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Chip Towers. You're going to hear that name in the coming month or so. He covers Georgia football for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hell, he's an institution doing it. Chip Towers has covered Georgia football for Georgia football fans for more than 35 years. Vince Dooley, Herschel Walker. You want to know what the hell's going on with Georgia football? Chip Towers is your guy. I I found myself on the phone with Chip Towers just the other day. He was asking me about Eugene. In fact, he's flying to Eugene on on Sunday, but more specifically, he's flying to Portland and then making the drive on I-5 to Eugene. He wanted to know how Dan Lanning was doing. He wanted to know how he was being received. He wanted to know the early returns from football fans in our state when it comes to landing. What do you think of the guy? So far, he hasn't coached a game, but he's in Oregon. Spent some time uh, with backyard barbecues, and he's already dealt with the tragedy, the loss of a player, Spencer Webb, tight end, passed away. How's Dan Lanning doing in your mind? Because the Georgia football honks, they can't get enough Georgia football, and it's why the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is sending Chip Towers to the state of Oregon to do some recon. I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com, and I want to talk about it right here. I want your feedback on how you think Dan Lanning is doing. Do you have the same questions about Oregon's head coach that you had when he was hired? Do you feel more encouraged and confident in Dan Lanning's ability to coach Oregon's program and continue the trajectory that Mario Cristobal set them on. Uh, how do you feel in general about the act in the first few months, given that he hasn't really practiced, he's had a spring game, he's just starting fall camp, he has uh, summered a little bit across the state of Oregon, but how is Dan Lanning doing in your mind? And what are the factors that will go into how you judge him this season? Is it wins and losses? Is it, hey, you know, you have uh, modest expectations, you're expecting seven, eight wins, but, you know, he better win the games that he should win, and you're okay if he, you know, goes to Georgia and they don't pull off a miracle upset in week one. Like, where's your head when it comes to Dan Lanning? 503-417-7575. I'm going to tell you a story. When Dan Lanning was hired, I didn't want to like him. I didn't. You may remember on this show that Chip Towers broke the news that Dan Lanning was going to be the next coach at Georgia. And maybe it's human nature. Maybe it's just, you know, I've been through some of this. You've been through some of this. Uh, I got an email from a a family that uh, lived down the street from Mario Cristobal when he was coaching at Oregon, and they had become friends. Their kids had become friends with his kids. And prior to that, their kids had become friends with the Taggart's, uh, Willie Taggart's kids. And then before that, they had seen Mark Helfrich and, And the uh, reader and listener uh, told me, I'm exhausted with this. My kids are emotionally exhausted with this. They make friends with these kids, and then they move away. I'm tired of it. And there's part of me 
as a journalist, like I'm here to cover the teams. I'm here to commentate about the teams. I'm here to write about the teams. And I'm here to take you along with me behind uh, the closed doors, behind the curtain, so to speak, to, to take you in a place that you normally don't get to go. But there's also part of me, the human part of me, that was a little exhausted, frankly, on the pendulum swing from Chip Kelly to Mark Helfrich, from Mark Helfrich to Willie Taggart, from Willie Taggart to Mario Cristobal, from Mario Cristobal to Dan Lanning. And when we got to Dan Lanning, I didn't really want to like the guy. And it's not his fault. I didn't want to like him because he represented the coaching carousel. I didn't want to like him because he's the new guy and here's another new coach that we're all going to have to get to know and learn his quirks and his strengths and his weaknesses. And so Dan Lanning got the job. And I frankly would have thought it would have been easier if Justin Wilcox, the cow coach who was offered the job, had taken it for a lot of people here because we all knew Justin Wilcox. There wasn't going to be a growth curve in getting to know the guy, getting to know who he is, what his story is. And so Dan Lanning arrived, and I went, ah, another guy? And frankly, I had had I'd already been through, when Mario Cristobal left, a bunch of people telling me, hey, you, gone t- you went too soft on him. You let him off the hook. You let him out of town. Peter Courtney, the president of the state senate, ripped me, came on this show and ripped me and said, hey, you went too easy on him. You, uh, you, know, you, 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 you uh, brought him on the show, and then you uh, let him off the hook when he uh, could have faced the music. And so there was part of me maybe smarting a little bit from that that believed no matter who – they hired uh, that I was going to uh, I was going to have to maybe be a little harder on the guy. Here's Peter Courtney when he came on this show. I'm going to play it again. This time I'm going to turn the sound up. Here's Peter Courtney when he came on this show. First of all, came on your program the day announced, and you loved it. I listened to him. Oh, you're so wonderful. You came on my program. That shows how much of a man, so much of a man you are. And I'm screaming at you, saying, Cassano. You let the guy now look at me. You roast me. You'd run me out of the state if I did something comparable in politics. And so I didn't want to like Dan Lanning. I'm going to be honest. I wanted to be like, you know what? Let this guy come in. He's going to have to earn his way here. And I felt that way for some time. And then I got on the phone with Dan Lanning. We had him on this show. And then I watched him on social media. And then I got to know the story of his wife Sophia, who had bone cancer. And Dan Lanning started talking about you know, her cancer and how that sort of recalibrated him as a, as a husband and a human being. And then we saw his kids, his three kids, and we got to know them a little bit. And then I, I uh, noticed he was having backyard barbecues. And, oh, by the way, he bought a normal, relatively normal house. He didn't go Lincoln Riley and buy a 12-bathroom house. He didn't, you know, he's not in Malibu. He just he bought a relatively normal house and threw backyard barbecues for his kids and, and his team and did this team building. And then I watched him in the last month or so as, you know, he went through an unthinkable tragedy with a tight end, Spencer Webb. And, and you know, I talked to him a little bit uh, around that time about how he was doing and how he was feeling. And I watched the way that his players reacted to that. And I got to tell you, uh, by the time we got to media day the other day, uh, he, I did an interview with him, and he left the interview, and I had a smile on my face, and I thought, gosh, darn it, I like this guy. And and it's weird because, you know, if he screws up as a coach, I'm going to call him on it. I'm going to rip him, and he knows that. And Jonathan Smith knows it at Oregon State. But I happen to think that the Oregon State and the Oregon programs right now 
are in the hands of two really good coaches who I have relative confidence are good people. Like, we never really know, right? We don't spend all that much time with these people, and they often, in my case, let me see what they want me to see. But I feel like Dan Lanning is a good human being, and I feel like Jonathan Smith is a good human being. And I'm looking around going, you know what? I think we could do a lot worse in our state. But I want you to tell me, how is he doing by your estimation? What are the things that you will judge him on? 503-417-7575. I want to roll out to the phone lines. we got a great show ahead. Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune, is going to be joining us this hour to talk about Utah football and their fall camp. But I want to talk about Dan Lanning, first of all. And Gary and Tualatin, you're going to lead us off. Oh, great. Hey, John. Uh, love your show. Thank you. Hey, I'm a big uh, Dan Lanning fan. I think that he's, uh, he's going to be the best coach we've had. I think this is going to be the best team we've had in a long, long time, probably maybe forever. Uh, centering on the defense, the, it's stacked up to be the best defense we've ever had. Uh, the offense looks like they're going to open it up, and uh, the, we're going to be an upgrade at quarterback no matter who starts. Uh, and I wouldn't necessarily start Knicks right out of the gate. I would make sure that he was head and shoulders above the other two because there is a load of talent at that position. Receivers, they're loaded at receivers. And uh, he seems like he's a, a bright guy that uh, is focused on defense, which we've never had, which the pack has never seen. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing 12-0. Wow. You're going 12-0 right out of the gate, Gary. Going 12-0. Wow. Right Look out of the gate. Way to go, Gary. He's got Gary. I'm not seeing 12-0. and And, in fact, I might see a seven-win season here. Like, look, this is the coaching staff. Dan Lenning's never been a head coach. His offensive coordinator, Kenny Dillingham, has never called the plays. His D coordinator has never called the plays without anybody on his shoulder. Um, there, you know, there's some questions here, and, and it's my job to ask them. I don't see 12-0, and but my favorability index for Dan Lanning, it's positive at this point. Now, that could change if he goes out and he loses games and makes excuses or his program looks sloppy or their guy's getting in trouble running around, then all of a sudden, you know, we're not going to be friends. But I like what Dan Lanning's doing, and I've got to be candid here. Like, I did not want to like the guy, and I, I kind of I think that Oregon's in good hands. Let's go to Jake, who's in Portland. Jake, welcome to the conversation. Hey, what's up, John? Uh just calling about Dan Lanning in Oregon. I think, uh, you know, Mario worked his tail off, but I feel like there was something missing. And just the vibe, watching interviews and everything with uh, the players and Dan. I think these guys are going to surprise some people. I'm, I'm putting money on that Georgia game, man. Um, they look good in the spring game. Uh, still a lot of football to be played, getting ready for the season. But um, they got some they got some talent. 50-50 ball with Thornton and the running backs, they could surprise some people. Yeah, I think they've got great talent at running back, at least great depth. I think defensively their front seven are very good, and Lanning's a defensive-minded coach. I think the big questions for Oregon are going to be quarterback, wide receiver uh, related. I think they'll run the ball fine. I think defensively the – the secondary is the big question. I, th I have a lot of confidence in that front seven for Oregon. But I also am looking at their schedule, and they start with Georgia. And in the first three weeks, they play Georgia and BYU. And BYU's tough. BYU 5-0 and against the Pac-12 a year ago. Sam's in Portland. Sam, welcome to the program. Woo, man. 
It's good to have football back, isn't it, John? Yeah, and I like thank, it. Thank God, thank God for you, John Canzano, because you are the truth. What do you got Ducks fans calling in already saying 12 and 0? 12 and 0. Are you out of your mind? Come on, man. Maybe 9 and 3, 8 and 4. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous to think that. I think I like Lanning, and I think he's going to do a good job. I think the, ta- the team is very talented. I got to know Rob Mullins a little bit this summer, and I, and, and I trust his decision-making. I think he picked a good human being and a good coach, and I think they're going to be good. I don't think they're going 12-0. and 0. And what's the over-under uh, which week or, how, you know, this year or next before Duck, Duck fan will be calling for Lanning's head if he doesn't make the playoffs? What's, what, what, what do you think, John? Uh, well, I think a bit – you know, it's weird because I look at their schedule and I think a big game for Dan Lanning is going to be the Stanford game. It's a game that Mario Cristobal struggled with for whatever reason. And Mario Cristobal got that awakening in his first season. It was his first conference game, if people might remember. And if he had just handed the ball off or punted in a situation late in the game, C.J. Burdell wouldn't have fumbled and Oregon would have got uh, a win that did uh, that became a loss ultimately. I think that was a major frustration for some fans as they watched Mario Cristobal recruit really well, say all the right things, work really hard, but then when it came time to uh, make an adjustment during a game, he really struggled, and the coaching staff struggled. Steve's in Canby. Steve, go ahead. Yeah, uh, same thing you're just saying. Uh, Chris Ball was a nightmare in game management. Uh, So I'm looking for Lanning to know what to do during a game, uh, how to make adjustments, you know, how to scheme, what to do. Uh, And the other thing is I think what Chris Ball, how he held the offense back, what he did with Herbert was a crime. Uh, I mean, the guy has shown what he can do. And so I'm, I'm thinking the Ducks are going to be better with Lanning than Cristobal. Yeah, I'm, I'm eager to see it. I think he's, he's a first-time, first-year head coach. There's going to be a growth curve for Dan Lanning. I'm here to tell you about it. And I, I think with Mario Cristobal, he, you know, he got mad at me because I was critical of him for the game management stuff. And he got mad at me late in his tenure because they went to Washington and they won the game, kind of won ugly against the Huskies, and Jimmy Lake was the big story. And people may remember Kayvon Thibodeau going Instagram Live in the locker room, and I mentioned it in my piece, and Mario you know, blows up my phone at 2 o'clock in the morning. He's, well, why aren't you writing about the game? It was a great win. And I was like, yeah, it was a great win, but this Jimmy Lake stuff is – is it's a story like Washington's coach shoving a player in the sideline and that's a story and Kayvon Thibodeau and what Mario said in the locker room afterward it's a story like come on so he I think he was a bit of a control freak frankly and and look sometimes the the things that make you a great head coach also make you difficult to be be dealt with let's be real coaches are generally control freaks what's Dan Lanning's Achilles gonna be we're gonna find that out and we're gonna find out whether or not the guy can adjust Series to series, quarter to quarter, half to half, because I think that's where Mario Cristobal really struggled. We're going to Salt Lake City next. Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune, he joins us. Back to the bald Face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. whole bunch of questions about Dan Lanning and how he's going to do in his first year. Very few questions about what Kyle Whittingham is going to do at Utah. 
but how good are they going to be? Here to talk about it, Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune. He is the guy if you are interested in Utah football. Camp has started. Uh, what's the early scuttlebutt at Utah, Josh? Uh, early scuttlebutt, I mean, look, we don't get to watch practice at Utah, so we're kind of left with, you know, talking to Kyle, uh, talking to Andy Ludwig yesterday, uh, the offensive coordinator. We got some players. I think, at least for me, yesterday was just a reminder, getting some face-to-face time, it was a reminder of just how heavy of a veteran presence there is with this Utah team, right, between Cam Rising and Tavion Thomas. You've got two all-pack 12 tight ends coming back. 60% of the of the offensive line is back. You know, the wide receiver room is a bit green, but all of the options are veteran are veteran pieces, second-year, third-year, fourth-year guys. So I think, yeah, you know, I, I, th- I think yesterday was a good reminder of, of just what we're dealing with with this Utah team and just how much is coming back off of last season's uh, Pac-12 winner uh, and the team that went to the Rose Bowl. Josh, you know, how did they get guys to come back? Because sometimes when you break through, you get to a Rose Bowl, the draft is calling, and you lose a bunch of players. But I kept hearing unfinished business at media day. Yeah, I mean, look, in fairness, I mean, they did lose some guys to the NFL draft, guys that, you know, were able to come back, um, Britton Covey, uh, Cole Fotheringham, um, some others. But, you know, personally, yeah, I was a little little surprised that you didn't see more defections. I I thought there was certainly some writing on the wall uh, at certain positions on the roster. Didn't didn't really have that many guys leave. And the guys that did leave, uh, Utah made out well because you didn't lose any really, like, major too deep depth chart type guys um i don't know it, it's a good question i don't have a great answer for it um i think i think people uh excuse me not people but you know players uh saw what happened last year and they want to be part of that again i mean last year was something was something special and i think there's something to be said for um you know wanting to be part of that again uh, i think this is a coaching staff that by and large really really supports its student athletes and not just this coaching staff I, I think you know beyond Kyle Whittingham I think Mark Harlan the AD at Utah and his administration I think they're very very student athlete friendly um, you know the adults in charge up on campus want the kids to have a positive college experience and I think you know sometimes that you know that might go by the wayside especially now talking about you know NIL and you know guys trying to make money off their name image and likeness um, you didn't see a lot of defections, and, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune with us. Cam Rising, really impressed with him at Media Day, impressed with him last year on the field. Is there a step forward he can take this season in your mind? Yeah, that was a major topic of conversation. I think that was the number one topic of conversation yesterday. You know, Rising kind of turned some heads a little bit at Media Day last week. He essentially said that he was not 100% healthy, um, you know, had, had some trouble with his shoulder in terms of going down the field. I forget who he said it to, uh, but at one point during media day, he, he, he told somebody that essentially he was never more than 80% healthy last year, which makes the season that he had even more remarkable because he was outstanding, right? 2,500 yards and uh, 20 touchdowns. I think he ran for another 500 yards and six more touchdowns. So that was the topic of conversation. Uh, Rising reiterated yesterday that his shoulder is feeling much better, feeling much closer to 100%, feels comfortable now going down the field. 
And Kyle Whittingham um, agreed with that notion that, you know, to, to have this offense evolve, look, Utah will run the ball, always run the ball. And Rising was very good in short and intermediate situations, but they didn't go down the field a ton. So Kyle Whittingham's, you know, main, main thing now with the passing attack is, is having Rising go down the field. And they think they have two, you know, legitimate, viable outside threats to throw to um, in Devon Valet and, uh, and Solomon Enos, who is now in his, uh, I believe, his fifth season with the program. The major thing that Kyle said yesterday about rising. Now, Kyle does not deal with or dabble in hyperbole with the media. Okay, He's not going to give you the whole farm, but if you ask him a question, he will generally be very straightforward with you. So somebody asked him about rising and leadership and having your quarterback back, and Kyle said that there are no weaknesses in rising's game right now. Mm. On the field, um, off the field, he's a leader. You know, he, um, His teammates gravitate towards him. He is doing all the right things doing the things that a veteran fifth-year quarterback should be doing. So when Kyle says that somebody has no weaknesses, which Kyle never says, that definitely got our attention yesterday at practice. Andy Ludwig, the coordinator, you know, I know I've known him for a long time. I think he's really good at what he does. I thought he had a really good year a year ago, and I was trying to figure out, did he just have good pieces, good players? Was it Was it an amalgam of he had enough time with this group that he finally – was able to do some of the things he was able to do. But late in the year, Utah just pretty much did what it wanted to do on the field. What did you make of his performance last year, and, and does he have the core group back this year? I, I think he absolutely had good players. I mean, that was clearly obvious, right? You know, with the, rise, uh, with the way that Ryzen played down the stretch, with the way Tavion Thomas played, with the way his offensive line played down the stretch. The offensive line was a, was a dumpster fire for the first month. Okay, between injuries and they were shuffling around, but that group came together. But I would agree that I thought Ludwig had himself had a really good season and he played to what he had. He wasn't trying to like jam square pegs into round holes. He saw what he had and he worked really well, really smart with what he had. And what he had was, again, an offensive line with veteran pieces that came together nicely under Jim Harding, the offensive line coach, and you had a battering ram at running back. Like, Tavion Thomas is a load, okay? Like, Makai Bernard is kind of this hybrid where, yeah, he can run the ball, but he, he can also come out of the backfield and, and, and do some damage there. But Tavion Thomas is like 6'2", 235. He's not that shifty. He is a straight-ahead battering ram. So you're Andy Ludwig, and you know this, and you're seeing this, well, what do you do? Like, down the stretch, Utah was running the ball 58, 60, 62% of the time in, in some of these games. And rising, I hate the term game manager because that indicates that you're not a good quarterback. Rising did a nice job of, you know, managing the game, so to speak. He wasn't making mistakes. He wasn't turning the ball over. Andy wasn't asking him to do a ton in most weeks down the stretch. But when, you know, when called upon, rising was – Rising was really good. So I thought Andy did a nice job of, of just playing to his strengths, seeing what he had, not trying to reinvent the wheel. And, you know, the job he did, that was a major reason why Utah had the level of success that it did. Give me a sense, Josh, on, you know, sort of the, take the temperature on Utah and, you know, all the talk about Pac-12 expansion, realignment, 
you know, there's been some talk about BYU coming to the Pac-12 or maybe Utah going to the Big 12. How stable do things feel for you in that region? Uh, I mean, I mean, look, you can ask, you know, you can take a sampling of the of the fan base right now, and 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 you know, there's, I think there's some fans who are who are a little nervous about what the future holds because remember, you know, Utah is no stranger to conference realignment. Okay, they were charter members of the WAC, they were charter members of the Mountain West, they moved into the Pac-12 in 2011, and now this program is at the point where, okay, not only are you in the Power Five, but you are winning your Power Five conference you have a chance to win your power five conference again. I think there is a sense from some fans that they're a little nervous because they don't want to go backwards. They don't want to be left out in the cold when all the dust settles. But then you have this other part of the fan base that kind of agrees with me. And I say that this administration, Mark Harlan, the AD, Taylor Randall, the president of, of the university of Utah, that's two men that are, are very savvy and very connected. Taylor Randall is an athletics-friendly school president, unlike his predecessor, Ruth Watkins. Athletics-friendly president between him and the AD, those two are not going to allow Utah to get left behind whatever realignment brings. So, you know, again, you can take take the temperature of the fan base and and get a couple of different answers. I think you take the temperature of the roster right now and Guys aren't really concerned with that. Um, I think this coaching staff has done a good job of, look, and Kyle understands, like, you can't block out all of the noise in this day and age, given social media and TV. That's impossible. But I think Kyle and his staff in the last three or four weeks have done a nice job of, like, circling the wagons, getting the guys to really, you know, buy back into what we're doing here because I think there is a very strong sense among, again, the, the players themselves that this could, again, be a a special season, something big could happen. So you don't want to, you know, start worrying about things that you can't control, like conference realignment. Utah will open at Florida. Big game for Utah. Big game for the conference. How are you feeling about that game? I've gone back and forth. Um, Look, this is not your typical Utah opener, okay? Utah does, um, at least under Kyle Whittingham, generally does not schedule, you know, power fives to open look they have right they played michigan uh here in 2015 they went to a&m uh like 10 or 12 years ago so they you know they've they've opened with power fives but the preference under kyle whittingham is generally to open you know with an fcs school maybe a big sky a weber state a southern utah idaho state something along those lines but this is a this is a big boy heavyweight opener uh, start of a home-and-home series going to Florida. Um, if Utah thinks that it can get to a college football playoff, uh, this is not entirely, but this is essentially a must-win game. If you go into the swamp and come out of there with a win, everything is on the table. And when I say everything, if you win, you can run the table. And if you run the table as a Power 5 champion, you're probably not getting left out of the, of the playoff. Now, conversely, you know, if you go back and look at Florida schedules for literally the last 30 or 35 years, Florida never, never opens their home schedule with a Power Five. They bring in, you know, in years where they have not opened with an SEC team, they are bringing in cupcakes, group of fives, FCS teams. So not only is this kind of, you know, uncharted territory for Utah, it's also uncharted territory for Florida 
And there's a lot of hype in Florida right now, right? New coach in Billy Napier. They're going to sell the place out. You've got a real deal power five opponent coming in Utah. So um, this is the, this is probably the biggest opener in Utah football history. If you go through the, you know, you go through the history and you look at some of the best teams in program history, none of them have, have walked into an opener with the stakes that this Utah team has going into Florida. Feels like they can win it. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they lost, but it feels like this, this could be a season to build upon seasons for Utah. It would be huge for the conference, Josh. I think it would be a lot of fun for you to cover it, and but I think it would be huge for the Pac-12 to get a team in the playoff in a year where everybody's talking about the Pac-12 splintering in pieces. I mean, in a team not not USC, not UCLA, but Utah. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I mean, look, Utah is more than capable of walking in there with a win. Like, I've been really starting to kind of look at the matchup and, and looking a little closer at Florida. Utah's 22 is better than Florida's 22. But you're going on the road in the heat and humidity. Uh, Florida, of course, has a ton of speed. You have a legitimate quarterback. Um, you know, going up against a first-year head coach in Billy Napier, not easy. I understand that there's previous film on Billy Napier teams from his previous top. There's no film on Billy Napier Florida team. So um, if you're asking me today on August 4th, yeah, I think Utah is, is going to walk in there and get a win, but perfectly capable of, of dropping that game too. It's, you know, when that point spread finally settles as we get closer to September 3rd, wouldn't shock me if that was a, you know, a true straight pick them that day at the Swamp. Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune. Follow him on Twitter. Read him at the saltlaketribune.com website. Josh, I appreciate you giving us your time. Great stuff. Talk soon, John. Thank you. There he is. That's that's the lowdown on Utah. We're going to go around the conference in the next couple weeks in the run-up to the season. Uh, but Utah has an opportunity. Uh, the Pac-12 needs some prominent wins. And it's not going to come from Oregon likely in week one at Georgia. But I think Utah's got a real opportunity to go to Florida, win a game, and immediately catapult itself into uh, consideration. And I think the Utes will be favored in just about every game they play this season. Keep an eye on Utah and Cam Rising. For some reason, they think they've got unfinished business. I've got unfinished business as well. Leave it here. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up in the next segment, Fletcher Johnson will be joining a broadcaster, Make-A-Wish guy. He's got a really cool event that is at about a decade in the running. We'll talk about the Ducks. We'll talk about Pac-12. We'll talk some soccer maybe with him as well as you hear him on your Timbers broadcast. Uh, we just got through talking to Josh Newman of the Salt Lake Tribune. Steven and Sean, I want to kick this around a little bit. First of all, let's go all the way back to the beginning of the show. I asked about Dan Lanning. What are your early thoughts on Oregon's first-year coach? Yeah, I mean, I think early thoughts for me is he's done everything right, and he comes across as a good, genuine person. Uh, he seems to get along really well with the players, and I think that has to do with his age, right? He's 36 years old. Mario Cristobal was in his early 50s when he left, so I think – that kind of bridged the gap a little bit. Uh, it just remains to be seen for me on the field, right? I think that's what I the most worried I would be if I'm a Duck fan is 
he's never been a head coach on this level before. And so what is his uh, you know, techniques going to be with uh, when it comes to game planning and clock management, just like Mario Cristobal had his failures at that spot, can Dan, is Dan Lanning going to have the same thing? Because the talent is going to be there. Even with all the downfalls Cristobal had, they still won 10 games last season. So for me, it's all about just how he manages the clock, how he manages timeouts, what it is on game on game day, because everything outside of game day looks like it's a home run. And I think that's a really, it was a good hire for the Ducks right now. Let me ask you, Stephen, about Cristobal. I, I, I don't, like, I want to criticize his game management, but I think the bigger fault was he was just a control freak that wouldn't let anybody else do anything. And maybe that's what we were seeing on game day, that, you know, he wanted to be the guy in control of the timeouts and whether or not they were running the ball and what were they doing on defense. And I think he's had his hands on everything. Yeah, I think that could be right because there's a lot of college coaches that do that, right? Like it's their program. And you see it a lot in college basketball where – these coaches really want their their fingerprints on everything that they do. So I think that was the same thing with Mario Cristobal. Is he wanted his fingerprints on everything. And I I will hope that Dan Lanning saw that and has learned from that and can say, you know what, I'm going to open it up a little bit because the Ducks have the athletes and the talent to, you know, open it up a little bit. And we've talked about that. So I, I, I hope and I think that Dan Lanning can do it because he's young enough, he's still learning, uh, but it just remains to be seen what it looks like on game day. Sean, what do you think of Lanning's early early impressions on Lanning? It's been a home run so far. It seems like the players are really enjoying themselves. It seems like there's really good vibes around the program right now. Like, the players just seem happy uh, based on all the interviews I've watched. And, you know, seeing photos of them playing cornhole in Dan Lanning's backyard. Like, it seems like... Um, it's a little bit more of a, a new school coaching staff and the, the coaching staffs relating to the players a little bit more. And I'm, I'm not sure how much that, that matters for wins and losses, but it does seem like there's really good vibes and um, you know, it's uh it landing's doing a really good job kind of relating to, uh, to his team. And you know, it seems like the team's really uh close knit this year. It seems were, like there's been some good bonding going on. So, so were, far it's been great. Were you guys surprised with the caller? The very first caller called in and said they're going 12 and 0. Yeah, you guys surprised. I, I, yeah. I was. I mean, I I was. I'm higher on the Ducks than both you guys, and I I think ten wins is a good season. Oh, I'm pretty high on this team. Twelve yeah. though, twelve and zero. Crazy. You're beating Georgia. That's uh, that's a okay. lot. Going all the way. That is a lot. I, the question for me about Dan Lanning also is, you know, coming from the SEC, I always got the vibe was as soon as he's hired, like you know, this is a stepping stone job, just like it was for Cristobal and for Willie Taggart. Is that what it's going to be for Dan Lane as well? If the Ducks have successful seasons, is he going to look to go back to the SEC? Here is a thought exercise. Who's the last team that ran the table in the Pac-12? Undefeated Pac-12 schedule. I think it's 2016 Washington. It's really hard to uh, no, do. No, uh, uh, I don't think so. I think I, I got to look that up, but... I, I, uh, hold me can't. to Washington. I'm like it's really hard. Like Utah lost to Oregon State last year. You know some good Oregon teams in the past. 2000. I don't think anybody's done it. I'm looking at the conference champions. I I want to say that this goes way back. I don't think it. Is, I don't think it was 2016 in Washington. Well, I'm 2014 look. Oregon did it right. Or no, they yeah. lost to Arizona. So yeah, yeah, it's super hard to to go undefeated in the Pac-12 season, let alone when you play Georgia and BYU in your non-conference. I understand the optimism. Yeah, I think 2016 a- Washington was eight and one. Last undefeated team was 2010 Oregon. They went wow. nine and zero. Oh. So super hard to do, yeah. and then you stack on Georgia and BYU. So I it, 12 wins is not happening. I mean, I, I feel like I'd be dreaming. Like you'd have to pinch me if they got 12 wins. I um, love the caller's enthusiasm. I don't like. I don't want to squash that because, you know, he's feeling good and he's in the middle of summer and okay, this is, let's go with it. But 
I don't twelve and zero is not happening. I don't think eleven and one's happening. You can talk to me about ten wins, but I I think they're going to fall somewhere seven, eight, nine in Landing's first year. And I just think it's a first-year thing. It's the same thing Lincoln Riley's going through at USC. I think Lincoln Riley's going to lose a game or two he shouldn't lose, especially early. But I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to see Oregon sitting there, uh, you know, high, highly ranked heading into the late season. That would be a lot of fun. Fletcher Johnson's coming along. We'll talk about the Ducks. We'll talk about the Pac-12. And he's got a wish that he wants to share with us. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I'm in studio. Fletcher Johnson has popped in. For longtime listeners of the show, you will remember Fletcher Johnson. He was part of the show. He's an installment in the show for like 100 years. <laughs> he is sitting in the studio. It's good to see a human being in yeah, the studio. Yeah, right? How Let's go. Uh, good, man. How are you? I'm well. I want to. I got a bunch of things I want to talk to you about, and you have a wish that you want to share, and we'll we'll talk about that coming up. Yeah. But we've been talking about Dan Lanning. You're... Your family, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys have had duck season tickets for like 50 years. Uh, yeah, my parents have had them since before I was born, and that's 35 yeah. years right there. So yeah. something like that. Okay, so give me an idea. How How is Dan Lanning being received by duck fan? I think people are excited. Uh, and, you know, we hear it uh, in the callers earlier today. People are excited about it. Um, I think for me, when I look at it, I, I think – uh, a young guy who seems to want to put down some roots is obviously a good thing. Uh, There's a program that had a lot of stability at the head coaching position for a long time with Rich Brooks and Mike Bellotti, and then basically since Chip Kelly left, it's been kind of a revolving door yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. So I think people are excited. Uh, I'm uh, certainly of the more realistic perspective of, hey, get to, get to nine wins this year, <laughs> and that's a successful year. You're not going 12-0. No, not going 12-0. Not a chance. Not a chance. Okay. But you see what Utah's bringing back. You yeah. play Georgia to start the year. There's just a couple a couple games in there where you go, you just got to expect to lose them, and if you win them, that's that's a yeah. cherry on, on top of the top of the ice cream, right? I left media day thinking there there might be a bunch of seven- and eight-win teams in this conference. Yeah. Cause it just has that feel like – I wouldn't be surprised if Stanford, they went 3-9 and nine last year. I wouldn't be surprised if Stanford won seven. Yeah. Like, you know, Cal could win seven. Oregon State could win seven. Oregon could win seven or eight. Like, there's just a whole bunch of teams, like, aside from Arizona and Colorado, that you could go, Washington could win seven. Washington yeah. State. Like, I feel like it's going to be one of those years where they all beat up on each other and the rest of the country goes, oh, the Pac-12 sucks. Right. But it's just parody. What do you make of all the realignment stuff? Tell, give me the reaction in, in oh, your world. Man, I don't know. You know, I think it's one of those. It's one of those signs. I feel like I'm getting old, right? Like I'm. I'm starting to go, man. College football isn't going to be like it was when I was a kid, you right. know. And it's like, nope. That's just kind of the way the world works. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think the interesting thing that I always come back to is the the conference was in a position to me where they were lose-lose, right? Like it seemed very clear that USC was unhappy uh, and they were not going to express their unhappiness until after they had made the decision to leave. Yeah. Uh, UCLA is a whole different ball game, right? But you think of some of the decisions that were made over the course of the last five years, whether by Larry Scott, whether by Ed Ray, the president of Oregon State, one of the staunchest supporters, and you understand why and you understand the position that Ed Ray, let's say, was in specifically. Is you know that USC and UCLA were going, we shouldn't be sharing money or we shouldn't have equal revenue sharing yeah. with these schools that aren't bringing in any money and don't dedicate any resources to their athletic program or specifically maybe their football program. 
But Ed Ray's going, well, this is great. We love it. Let's keep status it's quo. It's great for Oregon yeah, State. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So he, if he doesn't say that, then Oregon State loses out. But then if he does, then USC and UCLA are going to cut bait and go, well, we're out. See you later, you know? When you were part of this show, give me give me your years that you were here because I feel like we were talking about Larry Scott while you were there. Yeah, absolutely. I was 2012 to 2016, yeah. somewhere in there. We were saying at the time, this is a problem. He's driving the conference into the side of the mountain. And, you know, at the very beginning of that, I can remember, like, in 2012, 2013, people were telling me I was crazy. Like, people at the Pac-12 offices were going, oh, he has such job security. You're, you're nuts. And I'm like, I don't think so. Because you could see where it was headed. Like, they were flying full speed towards the wall. I think what's interesting is it seems like the the further that we get away from his tenure, you start to realize that instead of bringing the universities together, he pitted them against one another uh, is the way that I kind of perceive it because you have situations like we talked about with Ed Ray and Oregon State where it was very much, uh, well, USC and UCLA might want to do this if you don't yeah. you know fall in line yeah. or do this aspect, right? So uh, I, the thing that I look back on uh, that I feel like you know we should have been more aware of with Larry Scott and we weren't because you were coming off of the Tom Hansen era yeah. uh, of Pac-12 com- or Pac-10 commissioners at the time. Is there was no vision forward at all to mm-hmm. speak of. Only his job security. Right. That was the only thing he would talk about. Or I think I felt like, you know, to your point about like who he was managing or whatever, he, he only managed his own CEO group. He was only worried about his bosses. Yep. He wasn't worried about the ads or the ath- or the universities. It was those 12 bosses that he knew held his contract. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. It'd be so interesting to go back into some of those meetings and see what the how he how he framed his argument as it related to uh, the conference media rights deal and making sure that they controlled their own rights and controlled their own network and things along those lines. Because, uh, you know, he obviously uh, was a very convincing individual in the way that he expressed himself to that CEO group. Um, but... You have to imagine that there were some, at least, I hope, that could have read between the crap to realize that uh, there was something else going on here uh, that that was not going to be good in the long term for the conference. Yeah, it was it was bad. And when I go back, and I, I have so many Larry Scott cuts in the system here, but I'll just play a couple and we can kind of get to it. But, you know, when he was talking early on about the Pac-12 media model. Rather than having our rights locked down long term, in a situation we can't control, we'll be able to capitalize, both in the short term and the long term. In the coming years, I believe that the collegiate model will continue to evolve as well. I believe it will ultimately not only survive, but be strengthened by the reform movement, which the Pac-12 has played a leading role in. Ouch. I mean, it was interesting because it's almost like he was a visionary for every other conference or yes. for the Big Ten and the SEC. He saw it coming. He, he just, saw it coming. It didn't. just wasn't for his conference. I mean, that's that's <laughs> the most amazing thing is there's there's intelligence in what he's saying, but he didn't execute. He didn't he didn't follow through on the vision that he was sharing. And you know, you wonder at some point isn't his job as well to get the CEO group and the athletic directors and the presidents and the universities to invest in the athletics so that they can actually yeah. go out and compete on a week to week basis with the big 10 and sec. He couldn't, he couldn't do that. He, or he didn't do that. Yeah. And that's what ultimately set the conference back. He didn't believe in football either. He didn't understand football because you know, Harvard educated tennis player, he understood tennis. He understood the Olympic sports. I think that's why the presidents who hired him at the time 
I think they liked him because, oh, he comes from that world, and we value that world. We're not all about football. But, you know, he came in, and he put Woody Dixon in charge of football. Woody Dixon didn't know football either. Yeah. So the coaches, I remember the coaches were just up in arms. Chip Kelly, Mike Leach, they were up in arms because they were like, you got to be kidding me. We get in these meetings, and Larry's talking about rule changes, and we're trying to explain to him, here's how a football program works. And he's looking at him like, no, 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 this is how we're going to do it. Like, instead of going to the football coaches and going, look, football is the most important thing. It's the, it, it butters our bread. Uh, what do you need from me? Instead of saying that, he was telling them, here's what we're going to do. And they were, they hated him. Here's another Larry Scott cut. Owning and controlling our content through our own media company, the Pac-12 networks, and having control of our rights. Uniquely amongst conference networks, we've got full control of our rights and content, which preserves the flexibility we need to adapt to this rapidly changing media landscape and provides the freedom to experiment with new technologies and ultimately will allow us to maximize our opportunities and value long term. Nope. <laughs> I mean, it sounds great, right? Yeah. But what do you hear? Adapt, flexibility. They didn't do any of that. None, none of that ever yeah. happened. They they did the first part, like the first 10 words of what so he said, painful. and then nothing afterwards. It's so damn painful because, you know, when he's saying we got, we're going to control our own rights, it, you know, the content is what matters in the end. You know, you got your rights, great, but if your conference doesn't have USC, UCLA, or whatever as part of it, you don't have much to sell there yeah. in the end, and that's really going to – it hamstrings them now, but, you know, uh, it I really just, is frustrating. I think it's really interesting to watch what happens with Oregon, Washington, Stanford, and Cal. Obviously, who knows what, what rumors to believe yeah. and what not to believe, but, you know, would there be a situation in which those schools are willing to accept an offer to go to another conference at a lesser uh, revenue-sharing model than the original groups and then – you know, five years down the line, when the renegotiation takes place, they're they're up to join that. They could. The I think it will. We'll talk more about this on the yeah. other side of the break because I think there is a creative way. It's not the Big Twelve; it's the Big Ten. Yeah. But it, I think it would require this current media deal that the Big Ten's going to sign here. It's going to be a billion and a half dollars. It looks like it would have that hat would have to be up. We'll talk more about it on the other side of the break. More with Fletcher Johnson ahead. Leave it right here. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Johnson is stuck around for a second segment. We've been talking about the Pac-12, the Oregon Ducks. We'll get to your wishes. Man, I'm excited for this college football season. Give me an idea, Fletcher. USC... Lincoln Riley, you buying or selling them as a contender in year one? Uh, contender year one, selling. Uh, you get Caleb Williams. You get uh, the wide receiver from Pittsburgh to come in. Yeah. Um, no offensive line, no defensive line. And everybody loves to talk about skill players. When Oregon was good, when USC was good, they had the best offensive and defensive lines uh, in the conference, if not among the best in the league. When Justin Herbert was a senior and they went to the Rose Bowl, what they have? They had the best offensive line uh, in the country, as voted by you know, uh, you know, the voters. So you got to have the offensive and defensive line. So I'm selling USC in your one. I am as well, Stephen. You still selling the Trojans? Yeah, still selling. I, I'm with Fletcher. I just don't know that in year one it's going to work out with all the transfers coming in. You know, I've talked about it numerous times. As a college basketball guy, it, it works in college basketball. But in football, we've never seen so many transfers come in 
Can they gel in one year? I just think it's going to be tough in year one for Lincoln Riley. But after year one, I think that's when they uh, take off. Yeah, they'll blossom eventually. Then they'll have to play Penn State on a and uh, Ohio State, have to play Rutgers State. on a Thursday <laughs> night when it's sleeting yeah. in New Jersey. Yeah, and I love all this talk about like how Fox is going to put USC and UCLA on at seven thirty or seven o'clock. That's going to work. But do you think Ohio State wants to go play at USC at seven thirty on a Saturday night? No, no. They come home at like three o'clock in the morning. No, it, it, Ryan Day is not going for that either. <laughs> uh, Fletcher, you have you have a really cool thing that you started a decade ago, and I remember this. Jebner's wish. Yeah. Talk to us about Jebner's Wish. Tell us where it started. Uh, so basically, uh, I had a college roommate. Uh, went to Clackamas High School, graduated class of 04. Uh, his name was Jeremy Ebner. And uh, we lived together during college. We're fraternity brothers. And uh, after college, uh, he came down with leukemia. Uh, and he was up at the OHS, OHSU, Night Cancer Institute, getting treatment. And started to notice that a lot of the people around him were younger than he was. He was 25, 26 years old, right? Uh, and he kind of went, you know, I want to start a fundraiser to benefit kids uh, mm-hmm. that are going through similar circumstances because wow. I can't imagine them dealing with the pain that I am and having the energy and desire to fight. Uh, and it, it drove him uh, to want to get better and, and fight through the tre- chemo and treatment. So um, he fought for a year and a half, uh, unfortunately lost his battle uh, June 2nd of 2013. And the next day, myself and three friends got on a call together and said, let's fulfill his dream, his wish if you will um and we put together a golf tournament uh dinner and auction and that first year was in october you were there you broadcasted from uh oregon golf club that day uh and here we are sitting here what nine years later heading into the 10th annual event we've raised two hundred seventeen thousand dollars for make-a-wish uh oregon and then uh also granted 35 wishes for local kids i love that how powerful is that that he's in the cancer institute you know, a lot of us would be sitting around feeling sorry for ourselves, going, you know, hey, this is, I got a bad deal. And instead, he's looking around going, what can I do to help some of these other people? Uh, I think that says a lot about him. When did you first meet him? Uh, so I met him freshman year of college. Okay. Uh, but I actually had connections with him going back that I didn't realize. I had a friend who went to Clackamas High School that I grew up with uh, that was super close with him. And uh, so it was one of these things where he's just a guy that brought people together, yeah. right? I mean, I think that's the thing. His last name, uh, Ebner, in Hebrew, the root of it means father of light. Uh, And he's someone who brings people together, and he continues to bring people together on a yearly basis. I mean, I... Uh, kind of early on in the early stages of the golf tournament uh, became the main contact with Make-A-Wish and that eventually parlayed into me now working for them and I think you know I got that job in December 2018 and it was five and a half years after he had passed away and he's still having an impact on my life today in a big way. I love that. Give me an idea when you say grant 35 wishes what are we talking about? Yeah so basically uh, anything and everything in terms of the wishes so uh, we've had wishes to go to Jedi training at Walt Disney World we've had wishes to right like doesn't that sound like fun? Uh, Wishes to have puppies uh, wishes to yeah go to Disneyland, Disney World, Hawaii. Um, we had a wish to uh, have a um, German Shepherd puppy and a boat. We granted a wish for a kid to have a boat. I mean, again, these are all the money that we yeah. raise funds right. the wishes, right? Sure. So um, the average cash cost of a wish is $7,500. So um, we're trying to raise as much as we can uh, and donate as much as we can uh, to that great cause to make those wishes come true. All right, golf tournament this year, where is it happening? And 
for how can people get involved if they just want to support what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the golf tournament this year is tomorrow, uh, and it's at Rock Creek Country Club. We're sold out for golf and dinner. Uh, we got 140 for golf, 220 for dinner. Nice. Um, so super stoked about that. And then people can go online to our website and donate, jebnerswish.org. We're a, a verified 501c3 organization, um, and there's a donate button right there on the page that will take you to our donation page. And Every little bit helps, uh, and it's all in, in memory of Jeremy to really uh, kind of, uh, you know, make sure that his memory lives on uh, and that we grant wishes in his honor. I love that people can get involved. Was he a college football fan? He was a big college football he fan. He liked his Ducks. He liked his Ducks, yeah. absolutely. He played uh, played uh, on the offensive line for Clackamas High School. Um, their uh, 03, 04, I think, would have been his varsity years okay. uh, at Clackamas. So, yeah, he was a big football guy for sure. I love that. And how has this thing grown? Did you imagine when you guys started? started it that you know 10 years later you'd be doing the same thing the dinner would have 200 plus people at it like event one I remember it being a lot of friends and family yep that's what it was yeah. that's what it started off as and you know the amazing thing is I would say about 70 percent of the people that come every year have been every year since the first year so people bought in to support us really enjoyed the experience and that's what we're all about is providing an experience that's fun but not your typical charity golf tournament yeah. right like you're not getting harassed on every hole by sponsors we yeah. have sponsors for every hole but they're there to be like yep we're we're donating our money but we're gonna let your golfers go out and have a good time yeah um and it was the perfect group of people to come together to do it but to answer your question uh there is no way in heck i ever thought we'd be here in year 10 so yeah. statistically about 55 percent of nonprofits fail within the first three years because there's no vision no kind of backing behind it that really is long-standing and so for us I think having one singular vision to be able to grant wishes in memory of Jeremy has really allowed us to uh, stabilize uh, and create some longevity there, uh, and it's really grown from there. And it's neat for me to see you. I mean, look, you you also you still do radio. Yep. You know, you're on the Timbers broadcasts, and uh, I know that you know people know you from your time on the Ducks pre and post game show, and obviously on this show over the years, like. I've watched you grow up. You got married. You had kids, and now, <laughs> yeah. and look at now. You got two kids, and now you're working at Make a Wish. Yeah. And you're making like you're doing something that matters. The yep. rest of us are sitting around doing radio, <laughs> and you're doing something. That you do matters. a lot that matters too. You do <laughs> a lot that matters that. too. But <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And hey, that's what it's all about, right? I mean, I have a job that fulfills me. I have a wonderful family, a beautiful wife, uh, and two wonderful kids. Uh, one of which that came to Camp Exceptional this yeah. year and had a wonderful time at that. Um, and that's that's really what it's all about and I think you know I felt like you were someone who taught me how to uh, be confident in myself early on in my professional career uh, and certainly uh, staying in touch with you and kind of learning from you yeah. as you've gone through some of the different trials and tribulations <laughs> and happy moments that yeah. you've gone through have, have, have certainly had an impact for sure. Let me ask you we're visiting with Fletcher Johnson he's in studio today uh, you know Stephen and Sean fairly new to this show yeah you know, there's uh, I keep a notebook that has everybody who's ever worked on the show. Okay, <laughs> hundreds of names in there. Yeah, give these guys some advice because you had staying power. Like you, you were here, yeah. and you stuck. Well, how do you stick? How do you stick? Uh, you know what I would say is, uh, how do you deal with me? <laughs> 
<laughs> More importantly. Uh, you know, hey, I think I think you have to earn respect, right? That's what it's about. When you earn the respect, uh, the rest kind of falls in line. And I think early on, um, if I think back to the early days of the Bald Face Truth, uh, when we were on Bancroft uh, back yeah. in that old building, yeah, uh, there were some times where I had, to, I had to earn my keep, you know, when I was answering the phones on the BFT. Did I ever yell at you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> heck yeah, you did. Hey, that's fine. That, that helped me learn, right? There were some times where I had to tell you to kind of, you know, go take care of yourself. Yeah, I'll do back, my thing, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? But that's how you learn. And so, yeah, I guess my advice would be the couple pieces of advice that I got from – uh, from my time in radio, a couple of them came from you, is is just to be confident in who you are, uh, you know, study up. You're the expert. You're on the radio because you've done the research and made the effort to learn and study these things to be able to talk about them, right? So you kind of do those things, and then you treat people, you know, the way yeah. you want to be treated. Treat them with respect. And uh, that's, that's I think, what's gotten me to where I'm at. Uh, work hard. Take care of your business. And uh, love your family. Love your family be- Love your family before you love your job. Uh, that's right. Your job Your job will step right over your cold body. <laughs> Let's, be real. Let's be real about that. Uh, and here's another thing you'll note because you're here and you've been – Around me a lot. There, there are no hardly any notes in front of me. Okay, there's no transcript. There's two computer screens. I'm not doing anything on any of them. Nothing here is scripted. I get the sense that probably Sean and Stephen. I don't want to speak for you guys, but you guys probably view me as a little bit scattered. <laughs> I don't stay on time. I kind of do what I want to do. They have to get in my ear a lot. Like Stephen, right before the break, was like getting in my ear to talk to me about something. Yeah. But I know what I want to do. Like, I want the show to go where it wants to go because I know what, as a listener, what I want to hear is I don't want to hear somebody scripted and, you know, constrained by what yeah. is going on. I want the show to kind of flow. Yep, yep, absolutely. That's huge. Uh, I think that's that's one of the most important things. You know, you can very easily tell it. TV news is great for what it is, but it's very scripted. Yes. You know, everything is written down, and that's one of the great things about this medium. Um, I think as well it's helped me kind of grow into being able to speak uh, relatively easily and not think twice. Like, I'll go back and watch myself and go, gosh, what was I doing? Or why was I u- moving my hands that way? Or what have <laughs> you, right? But, uh, you know, like kind of perfect example is tomorrow night uh, I'm going to be giving a speech at the dinner portion of the event that I kind of didn't know I was going to be given until about eight hours ago and uh, I'm not I'm going to have notes and stuff yeah. but I'm not going to script anything out and I'm not going to practice it in front of anyone ahead of time because I want it to seem natural yes. and not rehearsed right yeah, which it should be yeah like you know that's how people talk I remember uh, early on I was real nervous like very first time I did a show like 17 years ago and I wrote a bunch of things down and I realized I was real stiff about it you know we don't do that anymore. Uh, Stephen and Sean, you got a question for Fletcher? This is your last chance to, to ask him. <laughs> Survival instincts. No, I, I wrote down everything you said. So you <laughs> I love it. Take it a little, little bit of gospel, yeah. not too Fletcher, much. Though. Fletcher, just how hot are the timbers right now? They're hot. Uh, not unbeaten. Uh, you know, certainly would like to have some more wins in there. Uh, but I think given everything that they've faced so far this season, playing well, um, they've had to deal with a lot of off-the-field rumors, uh, and I think they've handled it really well. And look, one of the changes with going back to kind of this post-COVID, if you will, model of MLS is there's only 10 matches left in the regular season, so they're going to be wrapping up the regular season basically by the end of September. So we're kind of in the thick of uh, watching the table, watching the playoff line, yeah. and seeing where this team's going to end up. Yeah. And that's the great thing about American sports, right, is getting to the playoffs. They and just got a draw last night, right? Yes, draw. one-one draw with See? Nashville. Is that that's see that's the thing that frustrates me still about soccer. <laughs> you and you I and need, my mother in law. I need a result. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Like a win or a loss. Absolutely, absolutely. But you know what? 
You get a point out of it. The, fr- the frustrating part not for zero. me is, is why is they co- – I know it's unbeaten because they haven't been beaten, but I feel like they need a new word for when they haven't lost for so many games. You know what I'm saying? Like, they tied. Yeah, I understand they're not been beaten, but they didn't yeah. win. I think we should just say they're feeling good about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. Nine games. yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I mean, hey, look, uh, everything that they've gone through, they just lost their last year's leading scorer to a knee injury for the remainder of the season or knee surgery for the remainder of the season. So, uh, you know, I think they've got a chance to make the playoffs. Uh, if I had to be a betting man right now, I would say they probably won't, won't make MLS Cup again. Um, but every year that they've made it, they haven't been the favorite. Right. So you never know. Lightning in a bottle. All right. Uh, for, again, for people who want to make a donation. Yes. Jebnerswish.org. J-E-B-N-E-R-S. Wish. Dot org is where you can go. Support it. Uh, make a wish happen for a, for a kid out there and keep the legacy, Jebner's wish and that legacy alive. Fletcher Jonathan, thank you. Appreciate Thanks it. Thanks for, for popping me. in. Leave it here. You got the BFT. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on seven fifty. The game. Anna's popped into the studio. She's making her triumphant return to the show. I want to talk about Brittany Griner, WNBA star, was sentenced to nine years in Russian prison. Uh, she was arrested in February for bringing cannabis into the country. Um, she had been prepared for a harsh sentence, likely to be part of a prisoner swap, so I don't think it was a big surprise. Also, 99-point-something percent of those on trial in Russia end up convicted. Oh, they, that's it? Yeah. They don't lose. <laughs> that's, okay? the, that's the conviction rate in Russia? Yeah, it's it's in the <laughs> 99s uh, percentage-wise. But they also find her a million rubles. One million rubles is $16,700. Um, she did not have a lot of emotion. I think she expected it. As she was let out of court, she said, I love my family. Um She has 10 days to appeal. Uh, President Joe Biden issued a statement on the verdict. He said she was wrongfully detained, and he called for her release. Again, I'm going to say this. I don't think she's wrongfully detained. She broke a law in Russia. I understand that we all want her released, but we've got to stop saying wrongfully detained. If you go into another country and you don't follow the rules, they have the right to arrest you. I I don't agree with her being there. I don't think nine and a half years is the right sentence for what she was doing. I understand this is all going to be political in the end. But, man, where do you stand on Brittany Griner? Um, I mean, I see what you're saying. I just think it's unfortunate, really, that she's being used as a political pawn in this whole situation. And I certainly hope that something can be worked out so that she's not spending nine years in a Russian prison. She won't make it. That you know, nine years in that those kinds of prisons, you don't you don't make it. Well, and based on the circumstances around her arrest and the trial and just kind of the the due, <laughs> I put due process in quotes. Uh, I just you know I hope every effort is made to bring her home. They're gonna have to swap her for prisoners, so that's what it's gonna happen. Um, her agent called the sentence severe. And said that goes to prove what we've known all along. She's being used as a political pawn. I have I have no doubt that that's the case. I want her to get home. Um, I just I I hate that this is playing out the way it is. And I also don't know what she was doing over there. There was a war going on with Ukraine. There was all like she needed to get out of there Playing sooner. basketball. 
playing Russian, basketball. Russian though. Premier League. Yeah, but why? Get out. Like, you know that you're a potential, an American citizen in Russia. I, I remember at the time the State Department was telling U.S. citizens, get out, get out, get out. She waited. I don't know why. Basketball? Yeah, well, the big injustice for me is, you know, why why did she have to go there in the first place? She's a huge WNBA name. Is is the WNBA not paying her enough? Does she have to go to Russia to supplement her income? Like that's that's the kind of the root of this problem to me. Yeah, part of it, but I I just I think if you have a choice to not be in Russia at a time in which Russia is dicey, you got to get out of there. How much does you put on Brittany Griner, Anna? I mean, obviously. You know, there is accountability there for her trying to bring cannabis oil into a country where it is illegal. Like, you can't ignore that fact. But the wider point is a good one, is why are WNBA stars compensated in such a way that so many of them feel the need to go overseas Mm -hmm. to round out, you know, the... The salaries that they make. She's making a million dollars to play in Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she makes uh, just over 220000 for the yeah. WNBA. So she's making five times her salary to be there. So is the WNBA culpable? It's not culpable for the fact that she tried to bring cannabis oil into Russia, but when you look at a story like this, you know, if we're going to sit here and talk about her being a political pawn, part of the perspective, part of the context in which this happened is, of course, the disparity in salaries between the NBA and the WNBA and just kind of that ongoing conversation about female athletes and how they are pretty consistently undercompensated even at the professional level. Yeah, how many games does Damian Lillard need to play to make 221,000? Is it one game? Is it less than a game? It might be it might be 3 Is quarters it of a, a game. quarter? 3 quarters you of know, a game? He's going to make 42.49 <laughs> million this year. So, you know, let's just do some quick math on that. 42 million uh divide that by uh the 82 games. I'm going to do it off the top of my head. Um uh, that's going to be roughly $500,000 a game, 512000 a game for Damian Lillard. So to Sean's point, D- WNBA, work to do. Number two, Brittany Griner, you're going to Russia. You, if you're going to go there and play, you got to go there and you got to be impeccable while you're, while you're there because you are messing with you know Vladimir Putin and everything that Russia can do to you. Um, and then further, I just don't like that, you know, I think she's going to come home. Yeah, I mean, in all likelihood, I cannot imagine a situation where she serves out that nine-year prison term there. I mean, the reports that I've read are that she likely won't serve that in its entirety, that you know, U.S. and Russian diplomats have been negotiating some kind of prisoner swap that would apparently include some Russian arms dealer nicknamed the Merchant of Death. I don't, mm. I don't know who that, that person that's a, is. That's a guy you want on the show. <laughs> merchant the of merchant. Death. I don't know what that guy did to wind up in prison uh, over here. But, um, you know, I, I would think... Is he wrongfully detained over here? <laughs> I don't know. The Merchant of Death? The Merchant of Death. That's a heck of a... That'll go down in trivia. Who is Brittany Griner traded for? The Merchant of Death is the correct answer. I hope she gets home. I do. I hope she gets home and she's safe, and I hope other players who go overseas. You have a a cousin who plays overseas. She plays in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. But 
that's a different equation. It's not China. It's not Russia. Well, it is China. If you ask China, it's China. <laughs> so if you ask people in Taiwan, it's Taiwan. Is but. she nervous at all? Is Sophia nervous at all about being over there? She just feels like she's on, you know, she's back in her homeland. And well, there's been a lot of saber rattling in the last couple of weeks between Taiwan and China to the point where I keep reaching out to my dad to be like, hey, you know. You are a U.S. citizen. You want to come on back to the U.S. here? You he know, has dual citizenship. He has dual citizenship. Yeah. So it's like uh, we've got room for you. But um, all of my tiny Taiwanese relatives are saying, don't worry about it. Nothing will actually come of it. It's just China doing it. Its and thing. she, you know, in college here in the United States, mm -hmm. she, you know, she made an NCAA tournament. She was a good player yeah. by college standards. She wasn't a great player. She was no shot she was going to the WNBA. Right. But she can make a nice living going overseas. They're paying for her school. They're paying her some cash. And she's getting, like, is she getting a Ph.D. or what is she getting? Um, yeah, she's going to be continuing a postgraduate degree over there, um, a master's degree. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that was – and it was very attractive to her because uh, she gets to make history, actually. She's the first American-born uh, woman of Taiwanese descent to go back and play in, in Taiwan. In that so she's kind of like the LeBron of Taiwan <laughs> women's basketball. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I'd have to check with her to see if that. What What's the time comparison. difference between sixteen hours? Oh, wow, you, you you knew exactly where I was well, going. I have to know if I'm calling my okay. dad if so, I'm going to be waking him up in the middle. So of the what night. time is it there right now? Get her uh, on the show. So it is about eight thirty in the morning there. Think she's up? Probably, probably. I mean, I'd be know. curious. We'll get her on the show one day, okay? Like in the five o'clock hour, yeah. While she's having her coffee, we'll ask her what is that like to be overseas and you know be playing the game you love. I think it's really cool. She's a really interesting story, guys. Um, her father Steve was like her biggest fan, and he was the guy who was forcing her or bringing her to the gym to <laughs> shoot baskets and work on her game when she was 10, 11, 12 years old. Club tournaments, even here in the state of Oregon. They grew up in the Los Angeles area, and he would bring her up, and they played a couple tournaments up here. I got a chance to see her play. And he was her biggest fan. Prior to her getting a college scholarship to go play at UC Davis, he collapsed at work and had a heart attack. He remains in a coma. He has not seen her play a college game. He is still in a coma. How many years? Uh, it's been about five years now. He's in a vegetative state. And so she is living this dream that he had for her. And it's very emotional. We just saw them in, in Southern California, the family. And mm -hmm. he is still alive and in a hospital. And she's in Taiwan living the dream. Yeah. She had to go into her freshman year at UC Davis with her dad being incapacitated and basic, basically playing for him. Yeah. And then I think the whole draw for her to Taiwan is, you know, he was born there. So her first posts when she arrived on Taiwanese soil to play ball were about coming home and that this was for him. I think it's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. We'll get her on the show. I want to hear her talk about it, too. Because we had her here one summer, 
couple summers ago, she came to visit us yeah. with some friends. Yeah. And let me tell you, you haven't lived until Anna's cousin and Anna's cousin's friends <laughs> come to visit for a few days. It's like a tornado. <laughs> tornado <laughs> of 20 They were on fire. <laughs> and they were all like... They were all basketball players. Basketball too. players. One of them ended up being like a model for like... What was the brand? She's Ulta? a model. Yeah, Ulta, the model. makeup model. Uh-huh. You go into the store, she's on the thing. Another one is a power lifter. Yeah, she, you know, <laughs> right. Sophia's over in Taiwan, yeah. but well, and Sophia, she's not the only one in that family. It's like really crazy on the song side of the family. There's something athletic going on. It skipped me apparently, but she, so she plays professional basketball in Taiwan. Her younger sisters, one played for uh, Claremont McKenna, just graduated. Another is playing currently for Chapman. And they've got a younger brother along the way that's probably going to wind up playing college ball somewhere as well. And another cousin on that side of the family is launching her, like, junior professional yeah. golf career. She's on the tour right now. She's, I know. She's playing in Kentucky today. Yeah. Or, or in the next day or so. Yeah, in so, Chicago, yeah. Chicago, yeah. sorry. Yeah, she, she's, so. yeah, she's like how old? She's like 14. And she's in Chicago playing a golf <laughs> tournament. I, I was like, I don't even, give me a break. I know. So what's going on there? Yeah. She asked me, uh, I saw her, and she says, like, hey, have you played Band in Dunes? And I was embarrassed. I was like, no. <laughs> like, she's like, oh, you live there. Like, not, well, not that yeah. close. It's not like it's around the corner. All right. Uh, we're coming up. We're going to talk about a move the Pac-12 is making that is a positive move. We've talked a lot about what the Pac-12 does wrong. There's a development in the Pac-12 world that is largely positive and very interesting. I'll share it coming up next. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Pac-12 announced something today that's kind of interesting. They announced that they are partnering with Twitter and NIL Marketplace Open Doors and another sports tech company. And they're going to allow football players and men's and women's basketball players to monetize videos of their top moments on the field. During the upcoming season, the Pac-12 will provide athletes with custom digital video after every game. It'll include their best plays. It'll include camera shots from various angles. And once the players tweet their highlight reel out, Twitter's platform will populate the video with pre-roll advertising. So basically, they're just going to put out Hey, here's me making a play during the game, scoring a touchdown, and Twitter's platform will uh, put a pre-roll video on it. Players then can make some money. Now, uh, football players who are approved for the program will make $1,250 and get a percentage of overall revenue. And this is per week, $1,250 per week. So there's, you know, ten to fifteen thousand dollars out there for players who get enough video airtime and make enough highlight plays. Pac twelve is the first conference to provide this. It's gonna be really interesting. Anna, what do you think of it? I like it. I would have liked this announcement better at Pac twelve Media Day. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just like yeah. I, you know, we went into media day kind of needing Klyovkov to change the conversation a little bit, break some news, get everybody a little, you know, off the topic what is all of what has already happened and looking forward. Mm-hmm. This is positive. This is good stuff. 
And yes, like if I could have a time machine, I would have not that, you know, I need to be like the PR arm for the Pac-12. But what I'm saying is it would have been ideal to have this announced at Pac-12 Media. And I think it's great because the consumer, the person on Twitter who's the fan who's watching the videos, you're not paying for these videos. Yeah. You're just sitting through a little pre-roll five to ten second, you know, uh, advertisement that is sitting there. It's a little inconvenient for you, but I think it's a win-win, and it doesn't come as a great inconvenience to the consumer. Yes. I want to see how it plays out because in people's uh, desperation for instant footage these days, you know, we just don't have the patience anymore. It's like our patience is whittling down to mere seconds now. Yeah. And so uh, I, I want to see how it looks, if that pre-whirl is going to be annoying or whether I care enough about that particular athlete and that highlight to sit through a pre-roll that I know is paying for the fact that I get to see the video. Yeah. I'm asking the Pac-12 right now why they didn't announce it at Media Day. Don't, don't I mean, you think it would be lost in the shuffle a little bit if it got announced at Pac-12 Media Day? Like, everyone just wanted to learn about conference realignment. Maybe. I maybe. feel like we would. it would have been a forgotten topic. But from a PR standpoint, you you want to change the conversation, and this is a part of a. It's a small piece of a conversation changer. It's one. It's it's a it's a little bit of oxygen that is not spent talking about realignment, not spent talking about those other things. And I think, you know, it would have. You know, they could have made a subsequent release two days later and said, "Hey, here's an example. Here are a bunch of clips." But it would have been a nice thing for George Klyovkov to get up there and say. But I think it's a fair point. Like, and how do you weigh that? From a uh, PR standpoint. I think Pac-12 was going into the media day with just kind of a disaster on its hands that it was having to deflect the fact that UCLA and USC were not in the room, spoke volumes. And uh, I, I do actually think that had this deal, maybe this deal wasn't, you know, inked yet. That's had, probably Had it. this deal been done, uh, I if I had been George Goyakov, I would have been tooting the horn pretty hard on this to be like, hey, look, look, innovation, it like partnering with technology. Like, remember, what was the thing, remind me, Larry Scott had some kind of deal with some tech company. Oh, it was like the testing of COVID or something. It was in the yeah. middle of the whole COVID thing. And, like, all the news was pretty depressing. Yeah. But Larry Scott had come out with some kind of deal. They Quidel. Quidel. Quidel to, like, rapid test athletes, you know. And that was the kind of thing, like, in the midst of a lot of, a lot of grime and bad news, that that was an actual highlight. It was a highlight. It made him look like a hero for about yeah. 16 seconds, and then they figured out that that deal had been in the works a while. He waited to release it. <laughs> uh, and, in fact, he may have – I don't – I can't remember the timeline, but he may have held that news intentionally. <laughs> It was news that was – it was a deal that was done, but he waited to hold it so he could be the one to announce it. Okay. That was part of why – I can remember there being – I can remember there, there being – There's something hinky about it, right? I can't remember exactly it's, what it was. It's the Michael but... Scott thing, you know, like uh. it was – in the end, it it is uh, – it becomes Michael Scott and The Office, everything that has to do with Larry Scott in the end, so – there you go. Yeah, we have partnered with a testing company. Yeah. But they held it 
for days. In fact, they knew about it prior to canceling the season. That's what it was. And he held it and brought it out like he had engineered this after the season was canceled. But it was already in the works. I remember that. And uh, anyway. But, yeah, so this is the kind of thing, like, I don't want to soil this good news. This is good news, right, for the Pac-12. It shows them as being innovative, partnering with technology, really supporting their student athletes and figuring out a way to – you know, champion their efforts on the field or on the court and, you know, helping them out with their their personal brand building and promotional efforts. Yeah, here's Larry Scott when he made that announcement. In this research partnership, the research aspect of this partnership, I can assure you that the Pac-12 and Quidel share a common purpose, not only to ensure the safety of our student athletes and to use, but to use this large population research study to advance our understanding of the COVID-19 virus and help to prevent the spread. I'm sure our athletes will be proud to be a part of this Pac-12 initiative that not only will help keep them safe, but ultimately the results from this testing will help improve public health at large and the well-being for their families and hometowns across the country. I remember my first question afterwards was, did he get stock in Quidel? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Fair question. That's where my mind went. So, a question though on this Twitter thing, um, it, it, like, has it been disclosed how the revenue is going to be split between the athletes and and the companies? They'll or? get. Tw- it says that they'll get twelve hundred and fifty dollars. Okay. And then they will get. Um, they will get a percentage of the profits beyond that. Okay. So I don't know. Okay. It's in the fine print, I'm sure. Right. All right, coming up, uh, we talked about Vin Scully yesterday, and there are so many great Vin Scully cuts. We're going to talk more about broadcasting. We did it in the 5 o'clock hour yesterday, why broadcasting connects with people, and more coming up. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Never say anything on this show that is intended to garner favor. Okay, Anna? Okay. Yesterday on the show, I gave you I gave you some props. You didn't hear it. No. Just talking about your spaghetti sauce. <laughs> For those people who uh, did not hear me yesterday, uh, my grandmother made an amazing spaghetti sauce. It is like the trademark comfort food in my life and when I went off to college she made me sit down and watch her make the sauce there's no recipe you had to watch her and you had to learn what kind of sausage to use and you had to learn like she would just put stuff in and you had to watch her do it Um, I can't exactly duplicate it for that reason but I can get very close and you have tried sauce over the years and here you are we've been married here for what 12 12 years yeah you nailed it. Wow. You nailed it. And and I didn't think I didn't think it would ever happen. I don't know. I still think it was missing something. No. Really? You nailed it. You got it. It's made with time and love and And you even asked a good question that you'd never asked before. <laughs> you remember what you asked me? Yeah. Day? I said, Hey, this thing's been cooking like all day. It's starting to evaporate. I don't think we're having we're gonna have any sauce left. Yep. What do I do? What do I do? Yep, and you uh, I told you, you, if you cooked it for a couple hours, it's okay to turn it off and just let it sit and then add some water to it, and you know, then you start it cooking again right before you're going to eat. It, yeah. it was fantastic. I've been eating that spaghetti 
I have had I had a spaghetti that night, okay, and red sauce by the way, with a little spicy Italian sausage in it. Ooh, so good. I had it yesterday. I had it again today. I've been eating that. I'm just gonna eat the whole thing. You know the funniest story about that is that your parents make this sauce like probably once a week. Yeah. And if you're ever around them when they're making it. Uh, first of all, to know your parents is to know that they just kind of gently bicker all day long. It's yes. how they express love to each other, mm-hmm. apparently. And so uh, watching them make the sauce, they alternately come into the kitchen and do things to the sauce yeah. without telling the other person that they're doing it. So your mom will sneak into the kitchen and throw in some oregano, which I think your dad doesn't care for. Yeah. And then just doesn't tell your dad. Your dad comes in and adds a little more Italian seasoning, and it's a whole process watching it play out. It's yeah. very entertaining. And my dad, he knows, okay? Yeah. But then we're talking about I'm I'm like my grandmother made the sauce. My dad is what second generation. Yeah. So I'm third generation. It's my job to screw the sauce up. (laughs) And so, but I'm trying to stay true to the principles. Even when my sister makes the sauce, sometimes she nails it, sometimes she doesn't. Like we don't always get it right. And I'm the same way. I hit about seven fifty with the sauce. Seven fifty. Seven fifty. About you know about three quarters of the time I get it right. Other times I'm like, damn it, what did I do? I didn't get the right sausage, whatever. And it doesn't work if you don't start with hot Italian sausage. Yeah. And it doesn't work if you shortcut it. You were guilty of that early on in our relationship. I know. You put it in a crock pot. No, you did it in an instapot. Uh huh. Yeah. And tried to like fast track grandma's sauce. Yeah. It's a sin. Yeah. Blasphemy. It's a sin. Oh, nostalgia. All right. I want to get to a uh, point here. I got a, I got a Vin Scully clip that I want to play. Vin Scully passed away this week. I know. Such 94. A legend. A legend. Legendary broadcaster. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Vin Scully. Here is a great story that Vin Scully told while on air. That uh, Bill Vec did as a promotion. He signed Satchel Paige, who was very close to being 50 years old and still pitched very well in AAA. On that ball club back in 1956 was Whitey Herzog, now a Hall of Fame manager, but Whitey was an outfielder. And they were playing in Rochester, New York, and Herzog was out in the outfield, and he noticed a promotional thing in the Rochester ballpark. There was a hole in the fence in center field, and above it was a sign, if you hit the ball in the air through the hole, you get $10,000. So Herzog went back into the clubhouse, got a bunch of balls, went out to center field and tried to throw a ball through the hole, and he couldn't do it. The one-two pitch on the way is a ground foul. So then when he went back in before the game started, Whitey was talking to Satchel Page. He said, Satch, you see that hole out there in center field? And Page said, yes, wild child. He said, I'll bet you a a bottle of bourbon that you can't throw the ball through that hole. The one-two pitch inside, ball two. So the next day, before batting practice, Herzog had a bunch of balls, and he took Satchel Page out. Herzog marched off 60 feet, inches from the hole. The next pitch, foul back. He gave Satchel Page the ball, and Satchel said, wild child, does the ball fit through the hole? And Whitey Herzog said, Satch, it sure does. 
He said, then you have a bet. So he held the ball up and looked over the ball like he was aiming a rifle. 2-2 pitch, and Adrian pulls it foul. Now Cage winds up and throws. The ball goes into the hole, spins around, and pops out again. And Herzog thinks, holy mackerel, he'll never come any closer to that. Page picks up the next ball, aims right through the hole, clean as a whistle. He said, wild charge, I will take that, and walked off the field. There is why. <laughs> See, Vin Scully telling that story while the game is going on. There's a hitter at the plate. There's several foul balls. The roar of the crowd in the background. There's just some, there's something about that that connects with people. It's incredible. He, I mean, he, and he's not leaving out the information that you need to follow the game, but, like, what a consummate storyteller. I mean, I just love the stuff that I've seen written about him, how he saw himself as a conduit between the game and the fans. And I love that he wasn't afraid to criticize bad plays or to praise opponents. Uh, he said that he always wanted to see things with his eyes and not his heart. And I just think that's uh, that's quite a legacy. Yeah, and you know we we uh, you know we're in the storytelling business over here, right? Like radio, writing. I'm writing at johnconzano.com. You've been on television. You tell stories. We're in the storytelling business. Um, the thing I appreciate about Vince Scully is he's in no hurry to tell you the story. In mm -hmm. every word, it's economical. He's not just stalling. He's not talking in a circle. Every word is leading you to where you need to go. Mm -hmm. It's just it's fantastic to listen to, and I can't get enough of it. And a friend of mine sent me a uh, a golf clip last night, and it's of this golfer who's stuck in the sand trap, and he's trying to get out, and Vince Scully was on the play-by-play -play of it. What? On and golf? On golf. And so <laughs> – it was, you know, the guy was stuck in this hole that looked like a meteor hole, and he, you know, the 14th hole, and it took him like three or four chips to get out of the sand trap. And Scully being on the call made it bearable because the guy said he's, you know, he doesn't know whether to laugh or cry. Vin Scully says the guy's in the in the bunker trying to get out, hmm. and it was just, uh, it was poetry. We saw a really good movie last night, guys. Vengeance, oh, yeah? vengeance. Never heard of it. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it either <laughs> till yesterday. <laughs> Who who's in that? BJ Novak? Uh What's yeah, BJ oh, Novak, the guy the who office. Yes. Yeah, Ryan from the Office. He wrote it. Also wrote the office, wrote Vengeance and starred in Vengeance. It's really good. Yeah, it's uh Better it's than surprisingly good. I I've got it down for winning some kind of screenplay award cuz the writing's just tight and creative and there's not a wasted word either the premise of the movie without spoiling it for anybody is bj is a new yorker who lives the life of a uh, gigolo more or less <laughs> and he is hooking up with people doesn't take anybody seriously all the people in his phone are listed as like you know the hot asian from the party and this other person he doesn't even know their names when he puts them into their phone in his phone uh he gets a call and it's from uh, the, the family of one of the girls that he had hooked up with. They believe he is her boyfriend, and she is dead. And he's being summoned for the funeral. And I'm just going to leave it right there. <laughs> and it is really good. It's got some surprises in it. Uh, uh, Ashton Kutcher is in it. Mm -hmm. He plays a role in it. Uh, who else is in the movie? 
Uh, anybody that? Uh, oh, John Mayer's in it. Yeah. Oddly. All right. Like opening scene. I thought it was really good. Yeah. I rate it on my one to one hundred scale. I'm not gonna get out of control. I'm gonna rate it an eighty-eight on my one to hundred scale. It's not gonna win Best Picture, but I think you're right, Anna. It will get nominated for Best Screenplay, and and maybe some other things. What did you rate it? Uh, I've got it up there. It's about an eighty-nine. Yeah. You just one-upped me. Oh, it's like literally. you said 88? Yeah, you yeah. literally won. Yeah, it's about an 88 and uh, 88.56. <laughs> it's worth seeing. Anything over an 80 <laughs> on my scale is worth your attention in a movie theater. So, like, Top Gun, go see it. You should. That one probably is going to win Best Picture or be up in there, too. Um, and what's that other movie, Everything All at Once? Oh, yeah, the yeah. artsy one. Yeah, go see that one, too. That one's in the, in the conversation Apparently as well. Apparently it's his first movie he's ever directed, too. Oh, he was good. Oh, he directed it too. Yeah. He he. Oh, I got much swing. respect for Ryan from The Office now. Big swing. Who yeah, knew? He's not just a temp fire guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> fire guy. I really, <laughs> I really thought he is that character. Yeah. The five at five is coming up. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT statewide. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Everybody running out to see Vengeance now. <laughs> it's like Siskel and Ebert over here. I think you're giving us too much credit. I don't know. <laughs> I never saw Dan Landing so happy as when I asked him about his favorite movies. I know. Pac-12 Media Day. He had some interesting answers. Yeah, he Did was. Did he seem a little self-conscious about his answers too? Like, oh, yeah, you're he gonna was judge dark. me. You're gonna judge me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because he kept saying how dark his choices were. Like when you say Road to Perdition is one of your movies. <laughs> yeah, that's you know. I think you got him too comfortable, and then he realized, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that. <laughs> he texted me afterwards and he said, you know, and I mean, he's probably just blowing smoke at me, okay? But he said that was my favorite interview of the day. Now, granted, some of these other media members that I'm hanging out with at Media Day, you know, come on. <laughs> these guys are not asking him about his favorite movies. They're asking him hard-hitting questions. <laughs> so, you know, they're asking him about who, who's QB1, you know? You, I wonder, do you get flack from people that are like, you're not asking about the X's and O's, no. come on. No, because I don't care. I want to talk football. <laughs> I don't care. What's his defensive strategy? I want to get to know these people. Mm -hmm. I don't. I know when they're doing an interview with me that there's part of them that's trying to stick to their po talking points and not say anything ridiculous. Okay, that's that's one of the primary objectives of most of these people who, <laughs> who interview. Like, right. they don't want to get, and they're expecting me because they think somehow... They see me, and they, they get to come in with their gloves up. Mm -hmm. Klyovkov did it. George Klyovkov did it on media day. He came in with his gloves up, even his body language. He wasn't leaning towards me. He was back. He had his PR person with him. And I thought, oh, he's been doing the same stupid interview all day long mm -hmm. about expansion and what did he know when he knew. And so for me, I'm, I want to soften him up a little bit. I go to the body. you know. Yeah. I start going body blow, body blow, body blow, <laughs> and then uppercut. But – with Dan Lanning, Mortal Kombat. no, we literally started the interview that way <laughs> that day because 
we started the interview by talking about, I said, this interview is going to be different than any interview you've ever done. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, and he was surprised. And I said, this is kind of like when you're coaching, you can't have the same practice routine every day. If you do, your guys kind of get bored. Mm-hmm. They get mentally stale. They, you know, they know that, hey, yeah. the first period is stretching, and the second period is calisthenics, and then we're going to do warm-ups, then we go to position coaching. No, no, you got to shake it up. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you got to go, hey, we're, we're doing punt block. What? Why are we doing punt block? Because we are. You know, or it, you got to shake it up a little bit. And so I told him my job in asking those questions and interviewing him is, yeah, I want to get warm with him at the beginning of the interview. How's it going? But then I want to surprise him. Yeah. Fairly early in the questioning. Okay. I want him to have to stop and yeah. realize he's not doing the same interview he's not he's doing with everyone else. Right. And then I want to get him into talking about something that reveals him, mm-hmm. reveals something about him. Yeah. And I'm going to go back. I think I picked this up in either my first or second job in newspapers. Okay. Sixth newspaper when I came here. Now, yeah. now johnconzano.com counts as my seventh, I guess. Mm-hmm. But my first two jobs were at smaller community papers. I was interviewing a lot of high school kids, yeah. some little leaguers, some <laughs> girls water polo players, whatnot. You you want to talk about learning how to interview people? Yeah. You stand there with an 11-year-old kid. Oh, that's the toughest interview yeah. ever. And ever. I learned pretty quickly how to keep them off balance. Yeah. And then when you get into a situation where you're interviewing, you know, Mike Tyson, or you're interviewing, uh, you know, Mario Cristobal, or you're interviewing, you know, somebody who's been interviewed a lot, mm-hmm. it really is an advantage to be in that position where you can lead them to the left and then jerk them back to the right, and mm-hmm. there, then lead them to the right for a little bit and then jerk them back to the middle. And so the, the idea is I don't want them comfortable ever. Not in a way, like not not like in an anxious way, yeah. but I don't want them to know what I'm going to say next. Yeah. And I also want to ask them short questions and let them talk. Right. I get to talk three hours a day here. Yeah. But it's like, you know, Herm Edwards said it to me off the air, off air the other day as we were waiting because we were trying to reconnect. We had lost communications with the radio thing. There was a big technical glitch at media yeah. day. So everybody had to shut down for like five minutes and we were just talking for a while. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, he goes, you keep me off balance. And I go, that's the point. That's I want you off balance. Mm-hmm. So when Lanning started talking about movies, he got excited. Yeah. And I could tell there was something there. Right. That he's passionate about. Right. He's passionate about dark movies. One of his favorite <laughs> movies was seven. <laughs> You know, like a head shows up in a box at the end of that movie. I kind of like that. I know that about him now, though, right? And he said, you're starting to worry about me a little bit. Like, he was like, road to perdition. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. You know, uh, seven. Shot in Oregon, shot in Oregon, by the way. Yeah, but, you know, I, I kind of wondered when he said that, if he was going to go stand by me, mm. free willy. That's, like, you know, if he was going to do all the, yeah. all the Oregon movies. Yeah. I don't know, man. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty revealing. That leads us, of course, to the five at five. Does very, it, though? Yeah, does very it naturally us? does. It's yeah. a great segue. Is Let's it? do it. The five at five. The five at five. Let's start with Brittany Griner. Okay, we already talked about she has been sentenced to nine and a half years in a Russian prison. The expectation is that she is going to be swapped and that this will be accelerated. She was arrested on February 17th for bringing cannabis into the country. 
She has been prepared for a harsh sentence all along. Uh, her, she pled guilty and then was given the maximum sentence. So Russia's playing a little poker with Brittany Griner. Like they knew they want to get the best prisoners that they could get in exchange for her. It's a little bit like Kevin Durant, like kind of drumming up his value at the trade de deadline. I don't know. But Russia and the United States will now embark in a tug of war and a prisoner swap situation. Griner has 10 days to appeal the verdict. I hope she gets home safe. I think the whole thing is uh, really disappointing. Number two, Anna, go. Well, while we're on the topic of geopolitical conflicts, Phil Mickelson and Bryson DeChambeau, am I saying that right? Yeah. Are among 11, count them, 11 golfers to file an antitrust lawsuit against you-know-who, the PGA. Three of those golfers are seeking a temporary restraining order that would allow them to compete in the upcoming FedEx Cup playoffs. Lawsuit filed in the U.S. District Court of Northern California this week. Very interesting. I am fascinated to see how this comes out because they're saying that the PGA is acting uh, just like it's, a, it's an antitrust issue. That, that to not allow them to play is actually illegal. And I, I am intrigued by this, and I, I can't wait to see how it comes out. I don't think the PGA has done anything wrong. Like, they have to protect their tour, their sponsors, their players. I don't think they've done anything wrong, but I'm not sitting in a robe as a judge. Yeah, but the lawsuit's saying that the PGA has, you know, imposed these suspensions on the players that's threatened irreparable harm to them and the ability to yeah. pursue their profession. So to me, it's kind of like an argument of like the, the old non-compete clause in a contract. Are those actually enforceable? In yeah. many places, they are not. We will find out. Number three at our five at five, do you collect sports cards? If you do, do you have a T206 Honus Wagner card? If you do, you would want to know that one of them just sold for a record $7.25 million. That's right, private sale, record amount, that eclipsed the previous record of $6.6 million that was a year ago to the day. This is a Wagner card that was recently graded a 2 out of 10. And uh, this is a big deal. Nothing on earth like the Honus Wagner T206 card. For people who want to know, uh, during, uh, you know, during production of the Wagner cards, one of the printing plates broke. There was also a copyright dispute between the artist and the tobacco company. And Wagner's family says he didn't like promoting smoking. So they pulled some of his cards from production. Um, so no matter the reason, there are very few copies of this card that are in production. It's known as the Holy Grail or the Mona Lisa of trading cards. Honus Wagner T206 selling for $7.25 million. Anna. Number four. Okay, I wasn't going to do this one, but because you did that one, I'm going to do this one. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg has an old baseball card that some guy named Ali Tarantino has discovered while rifling through boxes of memorabilia in his basement. What do you mean? So Zuckerberg's this is a on a card? baseball card from when Zuckerberg was very young and attended Elmwood Day Camp in Westchester, New York as an eight or nine-year-old. 
he offered the card that he'd had printed as a parting gift at the end of camp 30 years ago. So this dude, whose last name is Tarantino, is now offering it up for auction, but not as the actual card. It's being auctioned off as a digital collector's item, a so-called NFT. And Zuckerberg's posting about that auction now on Instagram, partly in a way to promote NFT technology and promote NFTs across I'd the I'd rather have the Honus Wagner card. I know you would. Mark Zuckerberg baseball weird? card. What did he bat? I don't know. 082? <laughs> so it's like one of those pictures you get from when you're in Little League. Yeah. It has your little stats on the back. Yeah. Four foot tall. <laughs> the high bidder in this auction should be Mark Zuckerberg's mom. <laughs> That's the high bidder. Seven dollars, please. Seventy pounds. Yeah. Uh, see, okay. Zuckerberg was already larger than life. The dude says that on the back of the card he put up, what is it, a point nine two zero batting yeah, average? Yeah, he batted nine twenty. Nine twenty. I say BS. <laughs> Calling BS on Zuckerberg's claim he that he hit nine twenty. Big, even as a nine-year-old. He hit nine twenty. <laughs> no chance. He hit nine twenty. I don't know if they had a batting helmet that could fit that guy. You see, oh. you seen his cranium? I bet he was one of those kids who had a giant head. <laughs> one of the size of that <laughs> nugget. <laughs> Finally, the fifth thing in the five at five, the Lakers and LeBron. They're talking contract extension. They had a productive discussion today, according to Rich Paul, the CEO of Clutch Sports. No new deal yet. LeBron and Paul met with the Lakers that means they met with Rob Polinka, the GM there, and the new Lakers coach, Darvin Ham, at the practice facility in El Segundo today. It was the first day that LeBron was eligible to sign a two-year, $97 million contract extension with the Lakers. They're having a dialogue. James is entering the contract's final year. It's worth $44.5 million. He'll be 38 when the deal's up. The maximum length of a contract that a player age 38 or older can sign is only two years, according to the NBA's collective bargaining agreement. He has until June 30th to sign the extension before he would become an unrestricted free agent uh, next year. So he could seek a one-year extension. They're trying to go early here and extend him by two years. LeBron would be presumably free. 40 or 41 when this deal is up. That's the five at five. LeBron worth two more years. If you're the Lakers, you give him two more. Steven. Yeah, you do. I think you definitely do. Uh, you know, LeBron still is a really, really good player, even for how old he is. So I think uh, you can definitely win with LeBron if you surround him with the right pieces. So, yeah, I think two years, you can give him to him. Zuckerberg's baseball card. Anybody got any interest in owning that? I, I have zero interest in that card. Literally zero. <laughs> no, I, I, I wouldn't pay for anything for it. Two things. Two things. I don't find that much pleasure in baseball and Zuckerberg. Not really <laughs> the card itself, Personally. though. I'll tweet this out. Let me he see. He does it. have. Yeah. I mean, maybe yeah. the stance, but he does he have a giant, a healthy-sized head. It is signed. Um, it's listed as he, his team is the Red Robins. <laughs> it's the 92 season, one year played, one home run. Was, who's his favorite player, favorite team? They, every card favorite has player that is on the back. Roger Clemens. Mm, predictable. Fa favorite team was the Yankees. Yep. And, uh, yeah, 
somehow they had a they had an eight game season with no losses. Uh, he played infield. What was that? T ball. He was eight years old, three eleven, forty eight pounds. Yeah. out of Dobbs Ferry, New about York. forty pounds of that is in his head too. <laughs> All of that is so unbelievable. I don't believe one thing on that part. <laughs> How many lies are in the back of Mark Zuckerberg's oh, baseball card? So funny. So funny. Well, well, not every day you come across one of those. <laughs> Let's see what it sells for. I want you to leave it here. We got Punch It Audio still ahead, among other things. You got the BFT statewide. Back to the bald faced truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. Every day on the show, we play Punch It Audio. It is a great opportunity to catch you up on all the stuff that's going on in sports. Today is no different. We're going to take a trip around the world of sports here. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Josh Pate talking about the Big 12 versus the Pac-12 when it comes to media rights. Big debate between these two conferences. Punch it. Someone's going to overpay for the Pac-12. George Clackhouse knows this. I have a trouble saying his last name. But here's the key. you got to keep your conference together. Big 12's thinking the same thing. we got to keep our conference together. And that's why you keep seeing these headlines back and forth, like the Big 12's talking to Utah and the Arizona schools. Now, if you're a Georgia Bulldog fan, you look at that and it doesn't even move your needle. You don't care. Nor should you, really. Because you look at that and you don't think it's valuable. You think whether Arizona is in the Pac-12 or the Big 12 is irrelevant to me. That's true. But if you are the Big 12 or the Pac-12, whichever one of you is able to just keep it between the lines, keep it on the road long enough to get your product to market, you could end up having someone overpay for you. He's, he's complicating the issue, Pate is. It's, it's a simpler equation than that. There are only so many media rights dollars available in the marketplace. Fox, ESPN, CBS, NBC to some extent with Notre Dame, all will bid on respective things. There's some other players who would like to get in on it, Turner being one of them. Also, you have some streamers that come in on top of that, Apple, Amazon, ESPN Plus, part of the ESPN family, but there's only so many dollars in the marketplace. So if you are the Big 12 in the Pac-12, you're watching the SEC. They already ate. Okay, they had dinner. They had dessert. ESPN gobbled up the SEC. Here comes Fox, wants most of the Big Ten conference. After the Big Ten closes their media rights window, there's only going to be so many dollars left over for the Pac-12 and the Big 12. I do think that some of the jockeying that you have going back and forth about valuation of the conference, all this other stuff, is rooted in the idea that the Big 12 has to wait a whole year after the Pac-12 before its rights can become available and up for bid. And I think the Big 12 is trying to destabilize the Pac-12 to some extent 
But I think this stuff works itself out. I think, you know, when when the Big Ten is done, I think we're going to see ESPN probably as the primary partner for the Pac-12. And then I'm curious to see how far the Pac-12 will go in selling all of its rights to others. Meaning, how far will they go with the Pac-12 network? How far will they go in giving up the network, possibly to ESPN or somebody else, Amazon, Apple? It's going to be really interesting. Paul Feinbaum, SEC honk, talking about Nick Saban, SEC coach, and all the complaining going on. Here's Feinbaum on Saban. Punch it. This is very predictable if you follow Nick Saban closely. Whenever he loses a game, like a national championship game, here comes the excuse. Here comes the Nick Saban grievance tour. I mean, sometimes I don't know whether Nick Saban is trying to continue to be the greatest coach of all time or he wants Jimmy Kimmel's job. Uh, I mean, I, I don't really understand it because, quite, quite frankly, at some point, it's not a great look. And I know that that's not a popular thing to say where I live because Nick Saban can do no wrong. But, uh, you know, first it was NIL that he was complaining about over and over. And, and now he's quibbling about uh, what happened last year. And, th and by the way, Greeny, uh, in the past, you can go back into the record book. Every time he loses one of these games, he called, a, he called the Sugar Bowl a couple of years ago a consolation game. He blamed the NFL draft on the loss to Ohio State when, when Ezekiel Elliott was there. There's always something with Nick Saban. But we still love him, don't we? Yeah, I love that Feinbaum's calling out Saban. This makes me feel a little better about Nick, uh, Paul Feinbaum, but Nick Saban, yeah, it's predictable. He lost to Georgia, and then he kind of said, hey, it was a rebuilding year. I'll let him speak for himself. Here's Nick Saban. Punch it. Last year we had kind of a rebuilding year, so we should have nine starters back on offense, nine on defense, but six guys go out early for the draft, so that in and of itself creates a few more question marks, but it also creates opportunity for other players to be able to shine in the program and contribute in a positive way. Nick Saban downplaying what happened. Bo Nix, he's an important player at Oregon, but Josh Pate believes he's one of the most important players in all of college football. Here's Pate. Punch it. Yeah, that's Bo Nix, Oregon quarterback. Get used to saying it. He's important this year, you know, and he's important for a few reasons. Let's say on the positive side of things, let's say our glass is all the way full, and Bo Nix just is a standout, and he takes Oregon to the Pac-12 championship game. Well, what does that mean? It probably shines very well on Kenny Dillingham and that offensive staff out there, and that would be wonderful for them, but I'll tell you what else we could take away from that. We could look and we could say, hold on now. You're telling me that this dude goes 3,000 miles from home and all of a sudden he's a better quarterback than I ever saw him be at Auburn? What does that say about the team he played on last year and the staff he played for last year? Really, what would it say about Gus Malzahn and the staff he was playing for even before the last one came in? There was a whole lot of transition. Bo Nix's entire Auburn career was churn and transition and he did not play at any point in his career for a staff that is world-renowned for developing quarterbacks in-house. Bo Nix has got a lot of experience, and I think that's why Bo Nix is going to end up being the starter in Game 1, Week 1 for Oregon. you got a guy who has started at Auburn. Uh, Oregon fans will remember him starting the game uh, in 2019 at Jerry World AT&T Stadium. He beat the Ducks then. 
He's got an opportunity now to step in and provide some stability at the quarterback position for Dan Lanning. We, we have no questions right now about the front seven at Oregon. I don't. I wonder about the secondary. But that quarterback position's got to be something that Dan Lanning is not sitting around worried about in week one, week two, week three. And that's all on Bo Nix. Dan Lanning insisting now that the job is wide open despite all of this. Here's Lanning. Punch it. All right, I'm going to keep giving you the same answer. We're going to compete at quarterback like we do at every position. I'm really excited that we have quarterbacks that can play winning football at the University of Oregon. If I felt like it gave us a competitive advantage to tell you I would, I don't. And we're going to keep uh, chopping. But, yeah, we have great competition there. We have guys that work really hard. I would like to announce that last night I didn't think it was possible, uh, but I was able to beat Jay Butterfield and Ty Thompson in cornhole. Um, Jay Butterfield might be the best cornhole player I've ever seen firsthand. It's amazing. Um, but that was fun to go compete against those guys and actually have a chance. I wouldn't say that I carried the team. You know, one of our analysts, Connor Boyd, that's a ringer, and I, I recruited him against those two guys. So excited to see our quarterbacks compete. They do a great job. Kenny does an awesome job developing those guys. Um, and we're going to keep, you know, keep making sure we get enough guys, enough reps. You can't have just one quarterback going into the season, so we're going to make sure we operate with that mentality. Look, I think Dan Lanning's doing what a lot of coaches have done over the years. I think he's trying to keep Ty Thompson and Jay Butterfield in particular from jumping into the portal. Meanwhile, you got a bunch of programs like Nevada and other places that are going, hey, Jay, you can play for us. If you're going to be second or third string, that is punch it audio. It's the best sound from all around. Coming up, uh, we'll talk a little bit about Oregon State. We started the show talking about how you're feeling about Dan Landing and the Ducks. We can continue some of that. But Jonathan Smith and Oregon State, they've struck a different tone this fall camp. I want to talk about it next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Jonathan, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, had a really nice season a year ago. But if you are a uh, college football fan, uh, you're going to want to see what Oregon State does this season. Here's Jonathan Smith talking about the quarterback position. Yeah, you know, I think it's been great to have Ben and Tristan get back to spring ball and be healthy. I mean, these guys had serious injuries, missed all of the fall, and so allowing them to get a lot of turns, and they've continued to progress, and they're healthy now. That's been fun to see. I do think Chance has taken a step in his game this spring. A lot of times it's harder for guys that are veterans, older, to continue to improve, right? I mean, from freshman to a sophomore, that's a little bit easier than junior to a senior type thing. But we did emphasize a couple things in the fundamentals for Chance. I think he's worked on that and shown in spring ball. So we're happy with all three guys. They like Chance Nolan coming out of spring, but what about the offensive line? Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football. Well, you're always trying to get better each uh, each year. I do think what we return at the offensive front, the athleticism, the, the veterans that are on that group, and they've had a great spring just watching them each, each day. So it always starts up front. We feel confident we've got a good group of uh, O-linemen. There it is, talking about the offensive line. That's really the strength of Oregon State this year. I, You know, I look at their schedule. It's not the easiest schedule in the conference. There are some other teams like Washington that skip both USC and Utah, some of the better teams in the conference. So Oregon State's got to play them all. They're going to have to uh, walk right through the trouble, so to speak, in order to get, to win more games. But I felt like last year they played really well at home. But I, I, I say this every season, right? They're – 
the te- there's teams that are looking to break through, and I feel like those breakthrough teams, you don't just break through without sniffing around it. They sniffed around it last year. They got great success at home. Now the challenge for Oregon State is to be competent or better on the road. There were two games last year that kind of stuck out to me as lost opportunities. Oregon State went 6-0 and at home. They were sitting pretty with about a third of the season to go. All they had to do was go to Cal, go to Colorado, and win. And those were gettable games. They went to Cal. They were flat. I was there in Berkeley. It was really surprising to me. Jaden Grant, team captain on defense, he was suspended for the first half of the game because he had a targeting call in the previous game. Defensively, they just weren't right. Offensively, they looked really flat. Then they went to Colorado. They ended up in this overtime thriller where they kicked a long field goal to send it to double overtime. But it was uh, a real disappointing performance for an Oregon State team that was really good at home. They were equally disappointing on the road. So here's my question for Beaver fans that are out there. Do you believe that this team can take a step forward? Do you believe that there's a step forward for them out there? And if so, what area do they need to improve in in order to win more games? 503-417-7575. And for Duck fans, we talked at the beginning of the show about your early impressions of Dan Lanning. Are you buying that he is going to be a better game coach than Mario Cristobal? Or are you cringing a little bit wondering what you're going to see from a first-year head coach? I think Lanning's been more collaborative than Mario Cristobal ever was already to this point. Even the clip we played uh, in that last segment about Cornhole, and he, he was giving credit to his offensive analyst as you know carrying him on the team. Like Mario Cristobal, I felt like put Oregon's program in a headlock and carried it to 10 wins. Give him credit. He won 10 games. But I always felt like, gosh, there's going to be five-star talent, four-star talent, that we all kind of bellyache about in the end, like, gosh, do they get the most out of the talent that they have? And I think it's almost like I would love to have Mario Cristobal recruiting and Chip Kelly coaching because I felt like Chip Kelly was visionary in his play calling and game planning, and Mario Cristobal was just an outstanding, unmatched recruiter in our state's history. Now comes Dan Landing, who's recruiting pretty well, not, but can he coach? We're going to find that out. Steven and Sean, Oregon State, is there a step forward for them? And for Beaver fans, light it up. Like people always say, Beaver fans don't care as much. Duck fans, they'll call in. Do, Beaver fan, I want to hear from you. 503-417-7575. Where's that area where Oregon State can can improve? Steven and Sean, where can they improve? Yeah, I mean, I think the obvious one is quarterback, but that's not really their identity, right? Like you've talked about this. We've talked about it. The physicality that the Beavers showed – even in the game against Utah last year when they won, 41 carries, 260 yards rushing. They only threw the ball 19 times. They just out physical Utah, even being down at halftime. So I think it's going to be on the defensive side. I think it's more the defensive line ability. Can they improve in that area? Just Because they've shown the ability to recruit and get physical on the offensive line. Can they do that consistently on the defensive line? I think that's where they can get pushed around a little bit. So I think for the Beavs, I think it's all about the defense to get better. And especially on that defensive line, defensive four, I think that's where Oregon State can really take a step up. If they do that, that's when they can be competing for Vegas, which is what Jonathan Smith wants. Yeah, I think last year their offense was really good. Uh, their, their offense averaged about 31 points per game. 
but a large portion of that was rushing the football with B.J. Baylor. So uh, offensively, I'd like to see them become a little bit more uh, diverse. And, you know, like last year, they were able to throw the football pretty well, but they running was clearly their strength. I'd like to see them air it out a little bit more this year and be able to throw the deep ball and, you know, for Chance Nolan to take that next step. So that's what I'm looking for out of Oregon State. I'm looking for a receiver that can hurt you. And I keep hearing Anthony Gold is that guy, but I haven't seen it, you know. And I think Oregon State will will use the tight end well. I think they'll run the ball just about as well as anybody in the Pac-12, if not the country. They, You know, Jim Mahalchuk, the offensive line coach, I know they spent a little bit of money giving him a raise this offseason. They needed to retain him. They did a good job there. They've got the core group of this offensive line back. I'm just looking for the next step. And for me, it comes with a big-time wide receiver that I have not seen yet. I don't know if he exists. I don't know if he's on campus. But Oregon State needs a home run threat in the wide receiver position. And then I I like to see the defense take just one more step forward. And to me, they did a better job last year against the run game. Their secondary was better than it was a year before. They got a better pass rush uh, on defense. But I'd like to see just a, a pass rusher, uh, somebody that you have to account for on a game-to-game basis that other teams have to go, hey, we, we got a problem here. Oregon State's got a great pass rusher. I know that uh, there were some disappoint, people disappointed that you know Oregon State as a team got better on defense, but you didn't really see that one guy emerge as a, as a threat on the defensive side of the ball. And again, these are problems. These are new problems for Jonathan Smith. The problems in year one were, can you stop anybody? Teams were getting like six yards a carry on the run game against the, his defense, and offensively they weren't very good. But it's those two positions. I got to see a wide receiver that can hurt you, and I got to see a pass rusher that makes you worry about him on game day. Yeah, I want to hear. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, you touched on it. I mean, it's a good problem to have, right? Like I think you talked about offensively with the receiver. I agree with you, but. Worst-case scenario with Jonathan Smith in Corvallis, the offense is always going to be good, and I think that is just such a good step for Oregon State. They're always going to have a high floor for that offense, You know, whether they're being creative with Jack Coletto on offense, whatever it is, Jonathan Smith's going to figure out a way to score some points if he has good enough talent. So for me, yeah, it's all about the defense, but it's good problems to have that they are actually at this level. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. Let's go out to Roseburg. Josh is in Roseburg. We're talking about Oregon State in this segment. Go ahead, Josh. Hey, yeah. I love Oregon State football, and I love Jonathan Smith. Um, I agree. Ever since he got there, the offense has been awesome. Um, I, I started going to Oregon State in 2013, so that was a pretty good season, but then sat through some rough seasons. And, uh, and, when Jonathan Smith got there, like, that first season, we were still losing a lot, but it was, like, good games to watch because the offense was trying. I think the defense ruined to improve this year, and I think they're going to. And then uh, I think if we have a standout wide receiver step up, that's going to make a big difference as well. Yeah. And, look, again, we're – in year one for Jonathan Smith, it was, can they stop anybody? They were terrible on defense. In year two, it was, um, hey, uh, can they win some of these games? They're playing closer, but can they win? Still some whispers about the defense. In year three, it was uh, change with defensive coordinator. Uh, you know, 
essentially we watched Tim Dibisar uh, lose his job and Trent Bray took over as the D coordinator and then we saw some big improvements. Suddenly Oregon State was damn good at home. 6-0 and at Reeser Stadium last year. Beat Utah. Uh, really encouraging. But they left some wins, some road wins out there. They don't know how to win on the road yet, and that is a big, big question. Yeah, John, think about their first game with Jonathan Smith. It was at Ohio State. 77 points. 77 to 31, but it was the 31 points that was shocking. I remember I was, you know, my family, a lot of them went to Oregon State. They're Oregon State fans. They had literally zero expectations for that game. And after the game, they thought, you know what? I can see a little bit of light at the end of this tunnel. Like, Jonathan Smith is doing things with the offense that gets him to score. Now that's just got to get that defensive side up, you know? Yeah, and and it's a good problem. Like you said, it's a good problem to have. What is continuity worth? What is having your coaching staff back worth? What is getting most of your offensive line back and some of your defense back and your quarterback back? What is that all worth? We're going to find out. I think there's value in all of that. I think Oregon State is going to a bowl game again. Uh, I'm really confused by Vegas that the line is set at five and a half or six wins to get bowl, you know, to uh, the over under for their season total. I think they're going to be a seven or eight win team. And Jonathan Smith said, you know, we could win 12. I mean, I thought it was really interesting, you know, and he didn't sound crazy. Like if he had said this in year two or even prior to last season, if he would have come out and said, you know what, I think we can, I think we can win uh, 12 games. I think we want to win the championship. We want to go to Vegas and, and, and be in the Pac-12 championship game. Each year's new. We've made some real progress. Uh, we feel, you know, feel good about the progress made we've got a lot left and each week you got to play well to be able to win games what i'm confident in saying is that each time we line up we feel confident if we play well we can win and we can win 12 12 games or whatever it will take to get there um but again what we the progress we've made it really means a, a, nothing for uh, this coming season until you start playing look i think i don't think it takes 12 wins to get to vegas i think it's going to take nine or 10 for anybody not named Utah to get to Vegas. So you got a couple mulligans in there. And I think Oregon State's really interesting because I could see them starting 3-0 and with Boise State as the opener. Then, you know, they get Fresno State in week two and then Montana State. I think they could be 3-0. and I think they could also be 1-2. and It just depends. Like, they're not that foolproof. But if they come to play in the opener, this is not Chris Peterson's Boise State. This isn't even Brian Harson's Boise State. And Fresno State, while they've got a great QB and, you know, coming back and Jake Hayner and Jeff Tedford's dangerous, this is Jeff Tedford coming back into the Fresno State program. Uh, you know, the thing that scares me about Fresno State is, is Oregon State having to go play at Bulldog Stadium. That's a tough place to play. It chews people up. I want you to leave it here. You got the BFT. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Good show today, guys. Uh, Peter Sampson coming up in Portland on 750 The Game. What's Peter Sampson going to be doing today? Well, I know he's been previewing uh, Pac-12 teams. I think he's... Either he just finished up the South or he's wrapping up today. What is that? Yeah, so. we're we're up to we're gonna we did USC yesterday, so Utah Day today. We've mm-hmm. been previewing every Pac-12 team. I'm excited to talk about Utah in the polls. I love that. Uh, Josh Newman joined us earlier for 
people who like uh, want an additional dose of Utah, you can grab the podcast of that. You should get the podcast of this show every day. It is available to you. Sean works his butt off on it, and uh, you can find it wherever you find a podcast. Speaking of Utah, John, how important is that Utah at Florida game? Because I was looking this up. Florida was picked fourth in the SEC East, so it's they're a middle of the pack in their own division in the SEC. If Utah go and lo- goes and loses to Florida, is that just such a buzzkill for the Pac-12? Yeah, because this is the Pac-12's best team going on the road to play, you know, a middle-of-the-road SEC team. And it's – right now, you know, I'm seeing Utah at minus two on the spread. Mm-hmm. Um, it was one, then one and a half. Now it's two. So people are buying Utah a little bit. But I think Utah's going to be favored in every game they play this season if things go as predicted. They've got a veteran quarterback. They've got uh, Kyle Whittingham's defense. Not worried at all about them. Offensive line, they've been good. I love their play caller. Andy Ludwig's a really good play caller. I think the questions for Utah are nitpicky. How do you replace Devin Lloyd, the linebacker? And, um, you know, how how do they – like sometimes when you're not picked to win at all, like the pressure's off you. Like a year ago, we could see Utah coming. Like it wasn't like they came out of nowhere. But they had to beat Oregon to get to the top. And then they did, and then they beat them again in the title game, and it was a breakthrough year. How are they going to perform wearing the the role of favorite now? And they will be favored in every game. Yeah, and last year, you know, you talked about Utah last year. They were started out one and two, right? They lost to BYU. They lose at San Diego State going into the Pac-12 season. So it wasn't as if they were the hunted, right? They were the hunter going after it. So, yeah, it's a completely different role for them. And Florida is interesting. Brand, you know, Billy Napier – era you know it's it's just interesting to see how this goes and by the way that's going to be a late kickoff in Gainesville so it'll be seven o'clock eastern time so it'll be kicking off you know the Utah guys are it's not like you're going east and kicking off at noon or one I mean there's so much about this game that I love for Utah and for the Pac-12 this is it man you you gotta get this one because, you know, Oregon's not going to beat Georgia. The best you could get out of that Oregon-Georgia game is that Oregon plays respectably, and the conference goes, hey, this is an Oregon team that's picked to be about second or third in the conference. It it played Georgia, you know, within 10. Um, and that would be a respectable loss for – I'm not a moral victory guy, but you just don't want to get blown off the field in the Oregon game. And then for the Pac-12's perspective, if you can win the Utah-Florida game – it goes a long way towards quieting the snickering that will happen in the event that, you know, Utah loses that game. And then and then it comes down to, you know, all these other non-conference games. You know, it comes down to Oregon against BYU in Week 3. It comes down to, you know, Washington State plays at Wisconsin. You know, Cal plays Notre Dame. Arizona plays San Diego State. Like, there are some games out there that, aren't high-profile games that you got to get wins in. Like Arizona playing San Diego State, San Diego State's going to win that game. Like, you know, Cal playing Notre Dame. They haven't played since 1967. Uh, Washington's playing Michigan State on September 17th at home. Now, that might be a winnable game for Washington, depending on Kalen DeBoer's sort of trajectory in this year. But, you know, uh, Michigan State is good, but probably not great. And then... Washington State is interesting. They're dangerous. They're going to get a game at Wisconsin in week two. 
That's fascinating. USC plays Notre Dame in uh, Thanksgiving week. That's interesting. Uh, USC, maybe they're with Lincoln Riley, maybe that's a game that, you know, later in the season, maybe they've come together a little better. Uh, here's another one. Arizona State plays at Oklahoma State, second week of the season. That is a pivotal game for Arizona State, Herm Edwards, but it's a big game for the conference. Uh, I mentioned Oregon and BYU, but, uh, you know, it comes down to, I think, the, I think after Oregon, Georgia, and after Utah, Florida, it's Oregon, BYU, it's Arizona State, Oklahoma State, it's Washington State, Wisconsin, it's Washington, Michigan State. Those are the games after that where the opportunities are going to sit for the conference. Yeah, and Utah, the the unfortunate part about college football is people take into account what you did in the bowl games, which don't even you know necessarily yeah. matter, but Utah had a good showing against Ohio State, probably should have won that game, you could argue, and so they have a positive like view on like nationally. You know, people look at Utah in a positive light. So to go into Gainesville and get that win, that would be such a big win for them because they'll be catapulted probably into the top five uh, of college football. I think I think it's a great point. Uh, Peter Sampson coming up on 750 the game. Uh, and you're right about the early part of the season being predicated on last year. And this is the little bit where I think, you know, people have said I'm crazy for picking Oregon plus 18. I don't feel crazy for that. I felt a little crazy picking Oregon to beat Ohio State outright in Columbus last year, only because it hadn't happened. Like Ryan Day, that didn't happen to him. And so I was predicting something that had never happened before, but I felt good about it because I liked the physicality of Oregon, and I felt like Ohio State was not clicking. In that opener against Minnesota last year, I went, eh, they didn't look great to me. And everybody was like, are you crazy? I'm like, nah, I think Minnesota ran the ball in Ohio State. I said, if Minnesota can run, on Ohio State, I think Oregon can run on them, so and they did. This Georgia game with Oregon, Georgia, there are some factors here that I think will keep the game close. One, it is week one. Week one, weird stuff happens. Two, Bo Nix, experienced quarterback. I don't think we're going to get a situation where he throws a couple of pick sixes and then we get a big blowout. I don't think that's going to happen. Number three, uh, Georgia's lost a ton of talent, and to Stevens' point, Everything we're hearing about Georgia is predicated on last year. I think Georgia's going to be a contender, but I don't know if they're going to win it all. I don't know if they're good enough, given all they've lost, to come back and win it all again and make the playoff. Like, I think they're gonna, the SEC is going to be a dogfight for them, literally. So those factors plus the wild card that is Dan Lanning, who knows Georgia, what is that worth? Is it enough to keep Oregon close? I think those four factors – Keep Oregon within 18 points, and, and, and you know, I, I, I'm I not setting the spread on this game. I'm not predicting Oregon's going to beat Georgia. I think I'd be crazy to say that. But I think Oregon can hang around a little bit and make that game interesting. Peter Sampson's coming up here on 750 The Game if you're listening on The Game in Portland. Uh, tomorrow we're back with another great show. We had the Arizona State Collective on yesterday. Guess who reached out, guys? Washington State, the Cougar Collective. They want on the show tomorrow. So the NILs are coming after us. Leave it here. Thanks for listening.